Alrighty. Well, Reen Eustace, welcome back for part four in the uh, more specifically the Lookout podcast. That's right. That's what today's will be primarily about. Lookout, yeah. Finally, Lookout stuff. Yeah. Lookout's on the Lookout yeah. podcast, I meant to say. But. So just as an interesting piece of happenstance, today, June 3rd, was in 1976, my very first Forest Service workday at Sula. No way. It was a Monday then. Yeah. 47 years ago. That's awesome. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Like, and we didn't even plan this, really. It was no, just kind of like... I just looked on the calendar, you know, when I marked down that we were going to do it today after we talked a few days ago. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, man. That's funny how life works out sometimes. That's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. Interesting happenstance for sure. Yeah. And that was the first day it was in Sula, right? Yep. Very first. Oh, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really pumped to have, uh, have you on again, and then especially about all lookouts. That's really cool. Yeah, so I guess we might as well get started, eh? Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the end of today, when we before we end the podcast, I've got kind of a a book list of it's not all inclusive because there's a lot of stuff about lookouts, but stuff that are has ended up I've collected and has been my favorites. Yeah, not just lookouts, but fire information too. Oh, cool. So I'll kind of go over that real quick in case people want to copy down some of the titles they don't know and yeah. it'd be cool if i could find out titles that other people know that i don't but these i've got more stuff than i'm going to talk about as far as books and that sort of thing but i just want to share that with folks out there yeah absolutely and they can find it on instagram and stuff yeah. they want to throw yeah. a book your way yeah and you can find a lot of the books you know on amazon or whatever used too which is good yeah except for that lookout one you're telling me about Cressex book? Yeah, the one that's not in publication anymore, right? Yeah, this one. <laughs> yeah, because I looked after that podcast and I was like, he was right. It's really hard to find and it costs a lot of money now, two or three hundred dollars usually. Yeah, that's what yeah, I was seeing originally too. they were 30 bucks when Ray was selling them back in the early 80s after it first came out. Oh man. But, you know, it is what it is. Once they went out of publication, it's kind of the Bible for the Pacific Northwest for lookouts not the whole country but he specialized in uh stuff related to the pacific northwest and probably some of the prettier spots for lookout stuff if you you know yeah. see some videos and he's good there's lists in there for you know all the different forests and regions and stuff of all kinds of lookout sites and everything oh, so it's pretty cool that is cool but the way this all started was obviously i i told you that 76 was my first year and that was my medicine point year yeah yeah and as a result of being on the lookout, um, I got interested in the history. You know, what, what more is there going on? What, do I, what don't I know? Well, I didn't know a lot, but yeah. Crockett, Jim Crockett that I work for, he'd been around for a long time, and he knew some stuff about old lookouts, and that was the seeds, like, well, I want to find out more. Uh, but I didn't really do much for a couple of years. The the next year, 77, I was a YCC work leader for part of the season and oh, got sure. absorbed in that. You know, and met a few people through folks I worked with at Sula that had done lookouts in the past. And just I just kept it in the back of my mind. But then around 79, end of the season, I started getting a little serious about trying to find out information um yeah because about lookouts and you know i was interested not just in people who had staffed them years before but the buildings how did that all work you know how did they ever decide what they were going to look like or 
you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, location. I always thought about that too, right? Like, did they just find the highest point and stick one up here? Or did someone come up here and actually, like, spend some time and look around? Figure here? it out. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what happened too. Yeah. Uh, but the stuff we're going to talk about today is going to be primarily about the Bitterroot Forest lookouts on the Bitterroot Forest, but not exclusively. There'll be a little bit of other stuff, but mostly just about the Bitterroot because that was what I was most interested in, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to do some oral history deals, you mm-hmm. know, interview people and stuff like that, but I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do or how. So it's good that I had those few years to talk to people and just kind of think about it and sort of decide what to do. So we're going to back up for just a second. So as relates to the lookouts, back in in the years before probably 1927, there was really no standardized uh, lookout. In other words, people just kind of built whatever they felt like they needed to build. Oh, in the like, beginning, there were just tent camps yeah. on high points or below high points and the lookout would hike up to a, with a portable alidade board to the top. But as far as buildings went, they just kind of did whatever. I mean, some of them looked like little log cabins. It was just no standardization. Oh, gotcha. So there was a guy named Clyde Fickies. Clyde was born in 1884 and died in, in Nebraska and died in Missoula in 1987. And he was, he became a forest ranger in 1907. So way back there toward the beginning and in Idaho and Montana area. Yeah. So he, you know, traveled around and worked on different districts and stuff like that. And in 27, there was a, a district in Sandpoint that was out of Sandpoint, Idaho, they got some money to build a lookout house on a point called Smith Peak. But they didn't really know because there was no plan. They weren't even sure exactly how they should build it or what it should look like. So it turns out that Clyde's father was a carpenter by trade and Clyde had worked with him as, as he grew up, you know, helping him build stuff and became quite competent himself. Yeah. So he came up with this idea uh, he drew up a. This is from his book, and this is one of the ones I'll mention. Yeah. Uh, he he came up with a detailed plan for a twelve foot by twelve foot building of frame construction, with a six foot by six foot cupola on top, and the idea was that the lower part would be the living quarters, and the upper part would be the observation room where the alidade would be. Oh, yeah, smart. And there was a trap door with a ladder that they would use to get up into the upper part, and then you'd close the trap door so you wouldn't accidentally fall through it down into the other part. And that's yeah. that was your, your, in quotes, work area up there. Oh. So Clyde ordered some lumber, and he and some other guys put this thing together, and it worked pretty well, they thought. Um, Clyde was also involved with... Grave Peak on Powell is a cupola log lookout, and Clyde got kind of involved in that because, you know, sometimes it was harder to get building materials to these places, so they kind of wanted that standard plan of the building with the cupola on top, but some of them were built out of log instead of, you know, plywood or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
they had a conference a few years later to talk about this and Clyde had prepared a new plan for a kit, a lookout kit oh. where all the materials would be standardized and they'd be cataloged and written down with the dimensions and everything so that you could go to a lookout site and construct one of those cupola lookouts um, and everything would be the same. You could build them anywhere on any mountaintop in the country, really, but mainly this is a Pacific Northwest, Idaho and Montana deal at the time. Oh, gotcha. And uh, they were all the same. And he actually was able to do this with, like, back in those days, 1928 or so, $100 for the materials. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't know what that, that exchange would be right now, but that just, it seems pretty, like pretty low. A lot. A lot more, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But, I mean, 100 bucks was 100 bucks. It was a lot of money back in in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, you know? That's what I was thinking, yeah. Well, not mid-1900s. We're talking 1920s to 30s and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, that first plan that he built, they tried it out, and it worked great. And so that was kind of what they were going to do is use those lookouts. But then they had a big meeting in, uh, I, I'm not sure where, and they decided some of the big boys decided that, well, those cupola lookouts maybe aren't the best because it separates your workspace from your living space. And it's better, it's probably better to have one room where you lived and worked so that you were constantly able to look out and not just specifically thinking that you had to be up in this certain spot to look around. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, so like cooking they came or something. up with a new kit which was the first L4 model, and he was involved in that. Oh, that's Clyde awesome. Clyde was involved in that. And they could build them for 400 bucks. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that was the beginning of, and they were 14 by 14, which is pretty much what Medicine Point and all of the others are. Yeah. Um, and that was the kit. And they decided to make them transportable. If you could drive to a site, you could put it on a truck and take it up. But a lot of lookouts are remote, right? So yeah. pack strings were the only way to get there. So they came up with a plan. They measured everything. They had material lists for everything. And they figured out weight-wise how to balance out how many mules that it'd take with the, the weight that they could safely carry yeah. to get all these parts up to the mountaintops to put them together. Oh, I've got a I've got a copy of one of the lists of all the parts and and that sort of thing. Oh, really? And at the end of it, it tells step by step how to build them, how to do it. You know, first you do this, next you do this. Yeah, well, uh, the engineers when to, said... when to put the oak floors in, how to set everything up, and it was all figured out. And and theoretically, anybody with carpentry skills with helpers could go build a Bowling lookout. Together, yeah. And that's what they did in the golden era of, you know, the 30s and 40s and even the early 50s when uh, L4s were going up all over the Northwest. Yeah. That was the kit that they used. And actually, inside of some of the lookouts, like Blue Nose, mm -hmm. because it's enclosed and protected underneath, you can look up at the rafters and, and that sort of thing that are on the bottom. And you can still see the stencil markings 
of the parts. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of them, there was a warehouse. I think they were in a few places, but there was a, a big warehouse in Spokane where Ray Kresick told me about this, that for many years they would build these kits there and then they would set them aside and have all the parts there and then they could go to the ranger stations and they could weigh them out because they had everything, you know, you need. You can put this on this first mule, you can put this on the second mule, et cetera. Yeah, and balance the loads and, and everything. Yeah, yeah, balance them and yeah. haul them up to the top. So that that was, that's how it all started, you know, that they got these kits and they could build them cheaply and, you know, the Forest Service wanted, wanted lookouts then because, you know, it was the big impetus, especially this is the aftermath of the 1910 fires. The, yeah. They wanted to put everything out as quick as they could, so they needed to be able to see where the fires were, and that's how all these lookouts kind of got started, you know? Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense. And, I mean, so not long after the L4 design was created, lookouts, like you said, were going all over, like Medicine Point. Wasn't that 1930-something, I think, right? We'll, we'll get to that. Oh, here. yeah, I don't mean to jump ahead. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to go into a little bit of that detail of, of, you know, how these lookouts started being put up on the mountains, and it was because of Clyde and these kits that they were able to get all the parts up there. That's really in, cool. It's good. A, at... In an efficient manner and everything. Yeah, have a standard too. Yeah. So now we'll back up. So late 79, early 1980, I got more serious about wanting to interview people. And I'd always enjoyed, you know, reading accounts in college and stuff, depending on what it was, whether it was about early American history or whatever, that people had the fortitude that to, to keep journals. There's journals that women wrote when they were on wagon trains to California back in the 18, you know, after gold was discovered. Yeah, Perry Schooning. They, they describe what it was like to travel across the country from a woman's perspective, you know, in a, on a wagon train. World War, Civil War veterans, you know, seafarers, lots of really interesting stuff. Yeah. So I had to come up with an idea of what I was going to do. How am I going to do this? What What am I going to, how am I going to find these people to talk to, you know? Yeah. And what am I going to ask them? You know, and so I wrote a letter in early 1980 to the then supervisor of the Bitterroot Forest, Bob Morgan, when the supervisor's office was in town and just told him who I was and that I'd been on Medicine Point, worked at Sula for a few seasons. And I was interested in doing a study of lookouts on the Bitterroot Forest and talking to people. And did he have any advice? He turned it over to Gordy Roth, who was, I think, at the time the FMO at West Fork cool. and Gordy responded and he said, I have some, I have some historical information here that you can look at and I can turn you on to some photos. And he knew people that had been lookouts. And so that was kind of the beginning of how it worked. Yeah. So then I had to figure out what am I going to ask him if I can interview him? What am I going to ask him? And I came up with a list. I just got to thinking, you know, okay, I'd been on Medicine Point, and I really was only there that one season, but if somebody wanted to ask me what I did up there and, and, and what it was like and all that sort of stuff, what kind of questions, and I'm not going to read these all, but they had things like, 
this was I did a couple of revisions of this after I started doing it, you know, to add some questions and that sort of thing. But how many seasons did you work for the Forest Service? What year was your first? How old were you? Do you remember what your pay rate was? Did you get overtime or not? Because they didn't in the beginning. Oh. Uh, it was just like 25 cents an hour or whatever, you know, way back when. Yeah. And uh, what lookout were you on? What style was it? How were you supplied and how often? Um, if the Forest Service supplied it, did they provide it? Did you have to pay for it? Were you required to smoke chase from your lookout? What kind of communication system did you have? What were your major duties? What kind of validate did you have? How did you cook your food? Did you have a wood stove? What did you do? You know, just all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. If you had contact with other lookouts, how did you have contact with them? Did very many people ever come up to where you were? Do you recall spotting your first fire? Did you have encounters with animals? Just all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so my next move then was, okay, so I've got this list. How do I find these people? Well, like I said, I found some through word of mouth. Sister Sandy knew the Hackett's, and she worked at Sula, was kind of the lead fire person for Crockett when I started. Yeah. And she knew that at least a couple of the Hackett's and staff lookouts way back when. So but I got a few leads like that. And my biggest leads were that I decided KLYQ was the – AM radio station here in Hamilton when I moved here in 74. They pretty much just played country stuff all the time, except for they had, I think, a block of two or three hours from like 7 to 9 or 7 to 10 p.m. when they played rock and roll for the, the kids that lived here in the valley. Yeah. But it was a little country station, and they used to do ads and things all the time. So I wrote them a, a letter and asked them if – told him what I was doing and basically just asked him if people had had lookout experience on the Bitterroot Forest that I would like to do interviews with them and I gave them my address and phone number and that sort of thing. Oh man. And the other thing that I did was um let's see so that was the phone stuff. The Ravalli Republic little newspaper was, of course, still here then. And I basically yeah. did the same thing. I went in and talked to them, and they put a free ad for me in the paper. And I started getting all kinds of letters and calls from people. That's cool. Yeah. And so I would just figure out a time when I could – and this was over a few years, not just all at once. But figure out a time when I could meet them where – if I could record it, if they minded, if I recorded, you know, what we talked about. Um, yeah. And every, everybody was really pretty cool about that. And so that was, that was the beginning of it. And it was cool to go to these people's homes. Most of them would just invite me, just come to my house, you know. And so yeah. we'd sit down and talk and I'd record some of them or I'd take copious notes on some rather than record all the time yeah, yeah. i had a cassette recorder it was about yay big ran on batteries or you could plug it into the wall and microphone i just sit it close to between them and i kind of like you and i right now with yeah. the microphone maybe here in the middle yeah, yeah and ask them questions and 
you know, you can hear in some of the tapes, they'd be like, you want a cup of coffee or you want a piece of pie or whatever? So <laughs> it's cool. just really homey stuff. Yeah, man. But, you know, they they were all real into it. I, I don't think maybe other than a few family members, nobody had really asked these people about their experiences. And some of them, you know, when I interviewed them were, you know, this is in 1980, 81. They were 75, 80 years old. And they were pretty thrilled that somebody was interested enough in what they'd done in their youth yeah. to, to ask them questions about it. And they were real free with, you know, how they felt about what they did and that yeah. sort of thing. I bet because kind of, I mean, you probably experienced this because I know I have like in, in the fire world is that if I'm um, talking to people outside of forest service, like I, I don't really bring it up because they don't know about what we do and there's, there's just no there's no reason in normal conversation to bring up like, you know, it's hard to explain stuff to them depending on what your forest service experience was. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly, well, the lookout thing, like what, wait, so you were up in this mountain in the middle of nowhere. So what did you do? Yeah. It's hard to wrap your brain what, around if you're not a, a lot of people here. are freaked out by the thought of being somewhere completely by themselves out in the middle of nowhere, having to go find, not fine, but go to a spring to get their water and haul it maybe a mile up to a mile or more back, you know, to a tower. Yeah. And Getting no nice. shower, no, you know, any of that kind of, it kind of weird some people out. Oh, I bet. Others thought it was really cool. But fire, the fire world, going on fires, and especially when I was on the Hotshot Crew, it was, it was, it was really difficult to talk to even friends about it because they just had no no frame of reference the only ones yeah. that had anything kind of close to that frame of reference is people that had been in the military yeah or had been in combat or something not that i'm saying fires were really like combat yeah, yeah. but you know what i mean yeah like teamwork and, and the teamwork yeah, and all that stuff dangerous. it's just some of the some of the things that we did the big fire sieges people knew about that stuff because they'd read about it in the papers or whatever yeah. but it was it was really difficult i I couldn't really describe to them, you know, working 18 hour days, sometimes 24 hour days, digging line and all that stuff. They just couldn't relate to it. Yeah. And it's so different from like a normal nine to five, you know, 365 yeah. day a year kind of job. And, you know, like, and it was kind of the same with a lot of these lookout folks. I think yeah. I'm, I was probably the first person that a lot of them had talked to at length about it, Yeah, you know, cause it was just, people couldn't, couldn't relate to it yeah there's no reason to bring something like that up in in normal conversation like we were saying so like how and, you... and it a lot of them thank me i mean they were i thank them of course for the time that of letting me to talk to them but they thank me because you could tell that nobody ever asked them stuff like that and they yeah. they like to talk about it and it was an important part of their growing up their life you know yeah and uh well it's important that you're remembering it. back to things that were for most of them, generally, pretty happy times. Yeah, you know. Well, that's a, and it's an important part because those those times are like frozen in time from when they experienced it that no one else else could experience again because it was the time frame when they're doing it, it was. You yeah, know, some of the older folks probably when lookouts were just getting established. And a lot of the stuff they did was way different than what we as lookouts would do now too. I mean, you yeah, know, living in a tent camp or whatever with only a phone line for communications and some of them were even at points where for a time period they didn't have any communication they were just kind of out there if they 
spotted a fire, they went to it. Oh, wow. Things like that. Yeah. So that was, that was how it all got started. And like I said, people were responding. So before I get into the interview is true, you, you had asked me about Norman McLean. Oh, I'm glad. I, yeah, I, I would have forgot. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. Yes. So Norman McLean, I, I knew of him because he was pretty famous in the Forest Service because he'd written The Ranger, the Cook, The Hole in the Sky. Yeah. And River Runs Through It and some of those books. And when I first started hearing about him in the early 80s, he was working on Young Men in Fire, his book about Mangulch, but it wasn't anywhere near complete yet. Oh. So Forest Service people knew about that because of the smoke jumper world and that those jumpers were from Missoula that went to that fire in 49 and, yeah. and died there. And I knew that he was a college professor. He was, I think, an English literature professor at the University of Chicago. Oh. Uh, Norman was born in 1902, and he died in 1990 at 87. So I knew that he'd done lookouts over on in the Powell country oh. and a few others earlier. So I just decided to write him a letter, and I didn't have a home address for him or anything. His family had a, a cabin up on Seeley Lake for many years, and they used to fish up there. I think that was the genesis of some of the river runs through its stuff originally. So I just decided I, f I found the address for the University of Chicago, and I wrote to the university, and I just said, Sirs, I very like, I'd very much, this is December 12, 1980, Sirs, I'd very much like to have you forward the enclosed letter to Norman McLean. I have no address to write him directly and felt that since you are a publisher of his book, The River Runs Through It, and since he was a professor at the University of Chicago for many years, he still was in 1980, yeah. uh, that you would have access to his home address if anyone would. I thank you very much for your help in this matter. Please let me know when you forward the letter. So the letter I sent to him, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I basically said, Dear Mr. McLean, I'm doing a historical research project on fire lookout system on the Bitterroot Forest here in Montana. And I told him that my interest started when I'd had Medicine Point in 1976. And just a little rundown, you know, that I had to hike for water and blah, 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 blah. And that I was starting to gather information from people and that I'd written also to the Washington office for lookout information and that I was getting ready to interview some people. And uh, was there any chance I could talk to him? So this is right December 12th. I didn't hear anything from him. So I wrote another letter to the University of Chicago and asked him if they delivered it. And they said they had. And then that... Let's see, let me find this. That spring in March, I got a letter from him. This is a hand, these are handwritten letters from him, which is just so cool. Oh, man, that is amazing. Some of them, they were pretty easy to read, but some of them weren't super easy to read. So I transcribed them in my own time. You know, I was able to write down. Yeah. So he wrote me back on March 22nd in 81, and he said... Dear Mr. Eustace, forgive me for being so long in answering your letter. I write nearly every day on my stories, and then afterwards on most days I have to write have-to letters, 
or as the rest of my correspondence gets pushed on the back burner. The simple truth is that I have to write until I'm sick of it, which I hope is an explanation not only of why I've been long in answering your letter, but also of why I would prefer to get together with you this summer for a few hours than get involved now in a long correspondence about early lookouts and the Forest Service. I am glad, however, that you are doing a study of lookouts. They were certainly important in the history of fire control, although it looks as if they are rapidly being replaced by air patrol, etc. Perhaps all the more reason for doing a study of them before they become an extinct species in the evolutionary process of getting men on a fire as fast as possible. Anyway, I will be glad to exchange memories with you, although my memories are long ago, first in 1917. However, I was on lookouts on only three districts, Bear Creek, which was later absorbed into the Moose Creek District, the Lolo District, and then Elk Summit, Summit, where I was never a lookout a whole summer, evidently differing from you and getting bored after being on a lookout for a week or two. But I remember some things in detail, even though that's more than 60 years ago. And as they say in court, I will be willing to talk. However, before we talk, I shall expect you to read the last story, USFS 1919, in my collection of stories. It has several pages of memories of being on a lookout. I shall be a month or more in Montana this summer, and he gave me his address. Why don't you drop me a note sometime long after, not long after the 4th of July? I also have a telephone number, but I don't remember what it is. Perhaps we could find some time when we would both be in Missoula. It would save us both time and mileage. Very sincerely, yours, Norman McLean. Wow. So it's like, cool. I'm going to try and get a hold of him this summer, summer of 81. Yeah. And so the next thing that happened, uh, I got, I sent him a letter later that March, and I said, Mr. McLean, dear Mr. McLean, thanks very much for your kind response to my letter concerning the project. I'd enjoyed discussing early lookouts with you as suggested, as you suggested, a potential meeting in Missoula on a mutually agreeable day would be good. I'll drop you a line soon after the 4th at your Sealy Lake home, and we can take it from that point. So... And on July 9th, I did contact him, and on July 9th, he sent me another letter that said, Dear Mr. Eustace, I'd be glad to have a talk with you in Missoula sometime this summer, and I'm sure, as you suggest, that Judd Moore, who was up at the regional office, oh. the big federal building in Missoula that they used to have before they moved out to the fort here, what, a year or so ago? Yeah, Broadway. Uh, he could find us a, a meeting room where we could meet. Uh, Missoula is still my hometown. I have friends to see and things to do, so I hope we can be efficient with our interview. Besides, I don't think I have much to contribute to you. I didn't particularly like being on a lookout and tried to get other jobs instead, and it was over 60 years ago since I was last on a lookout. So he basically did it because Bill Bolt Bill Bell told him that's what his job was going to be, oh. at least part of these summers. Yeah, yeah. And so... Like he said, it wasn't really his preference to be on a lookout. He just did it because he kind of had to. Yeah, probably young and looking for more action probably, huh? So he gave me his phone number and uh, told me to get a hold of him. 
So on July 28th, I had to send him this. Dear Mr. McLean, due to the recent increase in fire activity around here, it doesn't look as though I'm going to be able to make any definite plans to get together with you in Missoula concerning your lookout days. Being busy yourself, I'm sure you understand how it goes, especially remembering how it is with the Forest Service and fires. And then uh, I came up with asking him if I could just ask him a few of my interview questions via mail since it didn't look like we were going to be able to meet. And we did. And when he answered me back, he actually said, this is August 3rd, he said, Dear Mr. Eusis, I find myself actually sorry because we will not be able to get together this summer to talk about the old times in the Forest Service. But I understand. In the Forest Service, August is August, and I don't and doesn't allow much time for literary composition. Oh, well I always put. love that. August is August in oh. the Forest Service. When fires are gone, that's what you do. You don't have time for anything else. Yeah. So he said he, that he returned my answer my letter with answers to the questions that I asked him and just a few of the things that we talked about that he answered me. What did I do with that? So I asked him um, the names of where he worked. He said he worked for two summers uh, well, I mentioned he was on Moose Creek, and he didn't name the lookouts where he was. He was on oh. Moose Creek and down in that country. And then he was involved with Grave Peak. So if you've seen the Eli the Sam Elliott movie, The Ranger, the Cook, and the Hole in the Sky, yep. Graves Grave Peak is where his tent camp was. Oh, wow. And when he was there in 1919, it was a tent camp, and it was a little ways down from the summit of the mountain. Oh. And later on, Grave Peak had a log cupola style lookout on it, which is still there. Yeah. Yeah. They over the last few years they've done a fair amount of work on it to stabilize the logs and replace some. And, and, yeah, incredible. I saw some of the pictures and talked to it, Kyle a little bit about it. Yeah. Leif Haugen, who's a lookout up on uh, the country toward Glacier. He's really good at doing lookout reconstruction stuff, and he, he was involved for a couple of summers. Not all summer, but after his lookout, <coughs> excuse me, yeah, <clears throat> after his lookout stuff would be over, he would go up to to Gray Peak and help work on it. Oh, cool. So it, the pictures I've seen of it looks like it's in pretty darn good shape, and they aren't, they aren't staffing it or anything, and it's not a volunteer lookout, but just because of its importance and, you know, that even though Norman McLean was not in that lookout, he hiked to the top of that mountain where the portable Alladay bore was, you know, to yeah. look for fires and stuff way back in 1919. Man, so cool. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I, I just asked him a few questions and I asked him, were all the sites of your lookouts the couple out in the Selway and grave tent camps or permanent structures all were tent camps. Um, he said he thought that his original pay rate, his first season, which would have been 1917, I think, was $60 a month plus board. Did they pay overtime? No. <laughs> were lookouts 
alone, manned alone or in teams? Yes and no. Sometimes there would be two people. One would be the lookout observer and the other would be the smoke chaser and then they'd alternate. Oh. One time, one person would go to the fire and the next time the other person would stay there and then that person would go to the fire. Oh, gotcha. So wasn't a lot of detail, but the fact that it's handwritten stuff from him is pretty darn cool. Really, really cool. And that cool. I still have it. You yeah, know? that's it's, incredible. It's, and that you thought to even reach out to him, you know? And he was... He was real gracious about doing it, you know, and it would have been really neat if we could have, could have met because he was going to let me record it. Oh, that would have been awesome. But And then things just happened. He got busy doing other things, and we just we never got the chance to, yeah, to meet up, you know, again. Yeah. But, you know, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, life, life just got in the way a little bit. Life gets in the way, yeah. yeah. So let me find my top sheet again so that I can continue onward here. Um, so now we'll we'll get into some more of the interviews. I gotta find that opening sheet. So yeah, that is really cool. It's a uh, it's almost a shame that podcasting is more of a new thing because uh, you would have had a heck of a podcast. Uh, yeah, and you know now the quality my tape my my tape deck worked pretty good. But, I mean, I've done stuff on my iPhone, you know, it's just crystal clear. Like, yeah. what I do a lot of times, I don't remember if I mentioned this before, but when I'm up at Salmon doing my volunteer gig, when dispatch does the morning fire weather forecast and lookout check-ins, I record it on the voice recorder part of my phone oh, cool. because... There's no way dispatch can talk slow enough for you to write all that stuff down. So I just record it, and then when dispatch is done at my leisure, I can fill out the weather sheet, you know, with the details of it, because I can back it up if I miss something that I'm trying to listen to. Yeah. It just makes it so much easier, and these things are so clear. I did a little bit of recording at West Forks Orientation just for the heck of it uh, last week. Oh, cool. And it, it's just, it's super clear. They're just, everything, the technology is just so much better now. The interviews worked, and some of them are very good. I'm not saying the machine didn't work, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, there's, it's just so much handier now. Yeah, the like size difference and everything, like you said. Oh, yeah. Don't have to worry about running out of tape on this sucker either, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. So let's see. We got through the Norman McLean things. Yeah. And let's see. Okay. So for the Bitterroot Forest, um, before we actually get into some of the interviews, the Bitterroot, according to Kresick's book, had over the years, not all at the same time, but over the years, had at least 50 lookout points, which, you know, not just buildings on them, but patrol points and that sort of thing. And actually, I think even Ray was a little short because we've found some things in the years since I've been on West Fork that mention certain mountaintop names, not that they had towers on them, but there were places where a lookout maybe in a certain area was required to hike to these high points that allowed he or she, mostly he back in the old days, yeah. to hike, to look down into areas that they couldn't see from their main point. Yeah. So Ray has lists in 
this Bible. Fire, look out to the northwest. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and they're really neat to look through because he there's no GPS stuff, but he has a lot, or I mean, no lat longs and that sort of thing, but they have the township range and sections to all these locations. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he gives little brief information about them, you know, like patrol point in, I'm making this up, patrol point in 1918, log cupola lookout built in 1928, replaced by L4 in 1938, that kind of stuff. Then if they were destroyed, a lot of times he'll put the year that they were destroyed, and the destruction was usually by burning them. Yeah. taking everything that was useful out of them, getting the copper wire out, getting the alidades out, and then they just didn't want to use them anymore. They wait till it snowed, and away they went. Sad. Which is sad. Very sad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 50 lookout points at least. Um, like I said, summer tent camps. And so on our forest, the Bitterroot, so for a number of years, all that Magruder country over Nez Pass on West Fork, boundaries changed for forests back in the early 1900s. Oh. And there was a point in time where that was part of the Nez Perce forest, not the Bitterroot, but it was easier to access it, lookout points and that sort of thing, from the Bitterroot side. So the Bitterroot still was responsible for administering those lookouts and lookout points. Oh. And then later, because of that and other reasons, the Bitterroot got that country back. So it's cool that West Fork has a big chunk of land in Idaho that's part of our forest. Yeah, I think it's really cool you know? too. And every day, you know, when we'd go out there, we'd go from the state of Montana into the state of Idaho. Yeah. But the way we always worked at West Fork, done this for years and years, you know, it's a different time zone, Pacific time zone. But everything on the Idaho side of West Fork, we still use mountain time just because dispatch, you turn in fires and that sort of thing. And it's silly to have it an hour different and have to remember that. So if we just use the time zone we're in for Everything in the Bitterroot Forest, it just works a lot more seamlessly. Yeah, that makes more sense. I didn't even thought about that. That makes yeah. more sense, though. Yeah, it's was. Wait a minute, was the fire really at one? Found at two o'clock in the morning or one o'clock in the morning or you know yeah, when was it controlled? That kind of stuff. So it just yeah. made it easier to to do all that. Um, so the earliest known, and this is some stuff we found from a journal a few years back. The earliest mention we have of an actual tent camp on a mountaintop on the West Fork, on the Bitterroot, is Salmon Mountain in 1915. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, the first buildings, lookout building structures that we have on the Bitterroot, as far as we know, is 1922 when the first two-story log, crude log building was built in that summer on Spot Mountain and on Bear Cone. Oh, really? Same and summer? They looked pretty much the same. They weren't exactly the same because, remember, there was no plan back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whoever built them was from this same forest, and so they're basically alike, but they're just kind of a, 
they're kind of cool, funky looking two store log structures. You know, they're real tall. Yeah, I'd love to see a picture of that. Yeah, I've got some. I didn't bring them with me. It's kind of it's kind of hard to really show them, but I do have some of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was how it all started. But I'm going to give you. I don't know if you know this, but there's a little bit of interesting history about some lookouts on the Sula District. Hmm. So let me find that sheet. Yeah. So did you know that um, that Earl Cooley, who was the first, one of the very first two smoke jumpers in 1940. I knew the name, yeah. Earl worked on Sula uh, back around 1938. I did not know that. Did you know that? No, I didn't know. Oh, let's see. This is one of the books that I'm going to mention later. This is Earl's book. It's called Tri-Motor and Trail. Oh, cool. And it's about his entire career with the Forest Service, being the one of the first two smoke jumpers, later becoming the soup of the jump base, being the spotter on the plane when the guys went to Mangulch in 49. Oh, wow. All that stuff. He was still the soup of the jump base when my soup, Bill Miller on the Hotshot crew started jumping in 62. Earl was still the soup of the jump base at that point in time when oh, Bill wow. started. Dang. So he, let me find the right page here. So Earl worked on Sula. His Earl's first Forest Service job was in 1937 as a fire guard out on Moose Creek. Let me back up. Earl was born in 1911 and died in 2009 when he was 98 years old. That's a good run. Yeah, and he, he's, he's a, a Montana kid and lived in Missoula for many years. Um, and that's before he died, was in Missoula. But in 37, that was his first fire year. And he was a fire guard and did a little bit of lookout stuff on the lookout out there called Squaw Peak on the Moose Creek District. So oh, yeah. down the Selway River from us, yeah, yeah. but not real far. In 1938, he worked at Sula on tra- doing trail stuff and also did some road crew stuff. And that year in 38, the construction of the Painted Rocks Dam had started. Oh, and so the first thing they did, of course, was cut all the trees out of anybody that's been to the lake knows what it looks like in the fall because there's stumps everywhere in the bottom of it. Yeah, mud and stumps. Yeah, but they cut all the trees out. And Earl mentioned that at the upper end of the lake, there was actually a, uh, a sawmill operation where they processed all these ponderosa logs and stuff that they cut out. Oh, wow. And so when he was up there, he helped work on a road for some of the road going around the lake on the, the I think on the, the main side, not the cross the dam side. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And they did burning of all that slash that was down in the lake bed from the trees that got cut and everything, like trying to get all that stuff out of there. That would have been cool to see. It would have. Uh, so in 38, that's actually what he did. So in 39, I'm going to read this real briefly here. Yeah. In the spring of 39, I returned to the East Fork Ranger Station. So that's what they called Sula. And it was still 
uh, Camp Creek Ranger Station back in those days. It was originally named Camp Creek after the creek that runs past the front of the station. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and they changed it to Sula later on. Oh. Uh, Guy Granberg, the chief of the forest, or not chief of the forest service, he was the Bitterroot Forest supervisor at that time, told me that my my career would go further doing regular district work than road jobs. I started out on trail maintenance, uh, and then he mentioned that a guy named Austin Medine was assigned to McCart Lookout, but he got a job at the Soil Service, so I took over as the lookout up there. I went up one afternoon to study the country. McCart was just an Allidade board mounted on a high point and a tent back down the hill. And he talks about a big storm coming up and it blew his lantern over and burned a hole in the side of his tent and oh, sat no. in the other. <laughs> and uh, so then he says, while I was on the lookout, meaning McCart, the ranger decided to erect a tower. He gave me a list of timbers to be cut and dragged to the point where the tower was to be built. Um, a guy named Archie Faulkner was the forest carpenter, and we had six CCC kids trained to build towers and lookout cabins. I would have to drag the lodgepole timbers almost a half mile down the ridge with horses. Oh, they say. brought up an old bell mare that liked to pull. We trained her by putting a few poles on at a time and having her haul a light load. We needed at least 20 logs squared to 8 by 8, 20 feet long. Each morning, a CCC kid and I would cut trees, then I would square them with a broad axe. We'd get them ready to haul down to the lookout, and he would stay at the lookout and watch for fires. When we brought all the timbers in, the carpenter guy would come out with his crew and build the tower and install pre-cut cabin that had brought in by pack string. So he says, next, this is 1939, I was sent to Medicine Point, where we were supposed to put up another tower before fall. There was no timber on the point. The ranger suggested we pull the trees up the hill by block and tackle. We only had about 10 to 15 days of fall left. I knew we couldn't get enough logs up there 100 feet at a time with block and tackle. I said I'd get the timber somehow, but wouldn't use the block and tackle. I went around the ridge about a half mile and found a good supply of lodge pole. Uh, they were high on the mountain, churn-butted, and required a lot of broad-axe work. Fortunately, we had the same bell mare and well-trained by then. We could hook a log, and she would head for, the, head for the lookout, taking her time and resting whenever she felt like it. When she got the lookout site, the CCC kids would unhook her, turn her around, send her back. And then when Archie arrived, I helped the crew finish the lookout cabin. We painted it and completed it and had the whole job done before fall of 39. Holy cow. So he helped build the first structures on both McCart and Medicine Point, which hardly anybody knows about that unless you've read it in this book. Yeah, I didn't know until right now. What a legend. It's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, and that was my my first home, and I didn't know this at the time. I didn't find it out until I started doing this research and learned about that book, really. Yeah, like a few yeah. years later then, or? Huh? When it, like, when did you get the book? Just a few um, years later? Let's or? see. I got the book. I'm trying to see when it says he published it in here. That's what, yeah, that's what I was kind of curious about. It was published in 84. Oh, yeah, yeah, so quite a bit later than... Yeah, yeah, and I 
The only way you could get it usually was direct from him in Missoula. He became a realtor after he retired from being the smoke shop foreman oh, for many years up in Missoula. Yeah. And you'd have to write to him, and then he'd, he'd send him the money, and he'd send you a copy of the book. But I found this one. I've got two of them now. Both of them are signed. Oh, cool. Uh, I found one in a bookstore that was going defunct in Hamilton, and snatched it up. It was cheap. They never did cost that much, but it was real cheap. So, yeah. So I've got two signed copies of it, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome! I gotta start hunting some bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's still available. I think you can, if you Google it, you can find it. Probably find copies of it on Amazon and other places. Yeah, it's a good source. If you're ever looking for any of those sorts of books, you know, just Google the name of it and the author. And if it's available on Amazon or Goodreads or through second-end bookstores, that stuff will pop up. Oh, cool. Yeah, and you can find them and decide whether you want to get one or not. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so how, how are we doing here? Oh, we're doing good. Yeah, we're doing good, yeah. Um, so then Earl Cooley and Sula, and let me back up slightly. So back in the really early 1900s, some some even before 1910, but after 1910 when they really got serious about fire control and wanting to establish lookout points and all that sort of thing, there's some historical documents which I don't have the copies of because they're in the library, the National Library of History and Stuff over in Seattle. Oh. Forest Service repository of all kinds of things. Oh, gotcha. But some of the early foresters that were running around back in those days went all over looking, searching for high points. And they recognized way back before even 1910 that Salmon Mountain, on the early maps it was called, on the Bitterroot Forest Reserve map from 1898, it was called Mount Salmon. Oh, really? Earlier, oh, yeah. Oh, man. But the... That was a crackerjack observation point because it's 80, 89, I think 8,940 8, feet, and it's the highest point in the Magruder Corridor between this side and Elk City and oh. all that country out there. Man, cool. And it commands a pretty demanding view. So it was recognized you know, way back as being a good, a good spot. Yeah. Um, I like the name Mount Salmon better. Mount Salmon is different, huh? Yeah, like and Hell's Half wasn't. Uh, uh, most of the lookout points weren't even mentioned on any of those early maps. Oh wow! Yeah, it doesn't even mention on the forest map. It has Mount MacGruder on it. Oh really? MacGruder Mountain became a lookout. Had an L four on it later. It's not real far from where Salmon was off the L City Road. Oh. But yeah, it had a kind of different name too. Yeah. But most of them weren't even named. You know, in those early early years, they just didn't have names. Oh, gotcha. And Hell's Half wasn't mentioned. And did a little research trying to figure out where that name came from. You know, why was it called Hell's Half Acre Mountain? Yeah. And you can Google hell's half name just the name hell's half and it usually was used there's there's other places in our country they're called hell's half a mountain oh. and it was usually because it was a really remote desolate spot that sort of thing yeah 
Yeah, but there's a reference, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this lady here shortly, who traveled from a lookout she was on to go check out the tent camp on Salmon, and she had to go by Hell's Half Acre Mountain, which was burned off and desolate. So maybe that's maybe that's how it got the name. We yeah. don't know. That's the only thing we that we know. Oh wow! There's no there's no reference in any historic Bitterroot place names. There's a huge list of place names for the Bitterroot that I have a copy of, but that isn't in there. Oh wow! So we're figuring that you know since historically that name was used for a place that was desolate, that it probably got tacked on because. In 1918, there was a large stretch of country near near Hell's Half Mountain that was burned off, and you know, yeah, that probably maybe, like, maybe that's it. Yeah, kind of big Hell's Half Acre. Yeah, yeah. So the first record of anybody being up on salmon, we found maybe about I don't know ten years ago or so. Uh, there'd been an article, and I don't know whether it was in, well, it was in the Hamilton newspaper, the Western News, um, and it mentioned an individual, Kim Williamson was the person's name, hmm. who had worked for the Forest Service back in the 1915 era, and he, he did a journal and he mentioned he and another person put a tent camp on Salmon Mountain and ran the first phone line up there in the summer of 1915. Oh, man. Now, you got to think about this. Most people don't realize this either, but back in those days, the Deep Creek Ranger Station, which was the precursor name to Magruder, Magruder wasn't even started to be built until 1922. And if you look at some of the really old historic Bitterroot maps, back in the era before 1922, the West Fork Road stopped right where the dirt road starts now. You leave the station, you head up the Nez Road, you get to Scripps's Ranch, he owns that property now, and that's where the paved road ends. Yeah. That's where the road, which wasn't paved, ended in those days. And then everything else that headed to Nez Pass and on out was trails. Oh, and there wow. weren't very many trails, because this is back in the early, early days. Than Wilkerson that helped build the Alta cabin, Alta Ranger Station cabin, which was the first in America back in the 1890 era. Yeah, yeah. There's some references to him pointing out that originally all of that Magruder country, the main trail through there, was the Nespers Indian Trail out to the Buffalo country. So it came through that country, you know, and eventually tied into country that went through the big hole and out to the to the plains where the buffalo were oh wow and they'd make expeditions out there every year Man. you know from time immemorial to hunt buffalo and camp and treat the hides and do all that sort of thing and then make trek back to idaho to their that's a cruise native yeah that's a good pull yeah and they apparently used the springs that are at Spot Mountain and Salmon Mountain, or Spot Mountain, excuse me, and Bear Cone, were part of that route. 
Oh, wow. You know, Berkman Mark and I have talked about this a lot. You know, he said, you can see Spot Mountain from Berkman and vice versa. They're a long way apart. But you can just picture the elders, Nez Perce elders that were leading these expeditions out to the buffalo country would point from the Spot Mountain spring area. Okay, you see that mountain way over there? There's a good spring that runs all summer there. Yeah. And so we're going to go there before we move further, you know. Oh, yeah. We're, we're just speculating that they did that, but I'm sure they did. Yeah, totally. Water source you know? to water source, right? The elders knew the route, you know, and yep. they would point out to the younger folks who someday were going to want be the ones leading those expeditions where to where to get water and that that sort of thing. Yeah. Where game might be or not be. But Wilkerson talked also about originally the the few trails that were out in all of that Magruder country were Indian trails and they liked the high country, the ridges and stuff, because, you know, creek drainages usually have a lot of downfall and that sort of thing in them. So they tried to stay high if they could. Yeah, that makes and sense. so the first Forest Service trails were just improvements of these old Indian trails. And then gradually as it became important to build lookouts, make access to mountaintops and stuff, then other subsidiary trails started happening. But back in that 1915 era, there were not very many trails. So the it's it's kind of boring reading but i've i mean i've read it all many times you know he talked about june 24th 1915 moved camp down to deep creek deep creek is the creek that runs from nez pass and goes into the selway there were the stone bridges now oh. to the entrance to magruder ranger station yeah, yeah. moved down to deep creek to the groff brothers mining camp office who knows where that is i don't yeah uh myself and wilkerson dan wilkerson cut out a new trail fan rolled his horse down a hill with the saddle on and our lunch no damage i rolled a log downhill over al hamilton lots of excitement today al hamilton went to darby (laughs) and then another time rained all day stayed in camp looked for horses did not find them just, just references like that. Yeah. And then he talks about on July 24th that year in 1915, moved up to the top of Salmon Mountain to our new camp for the summer. Uh, the next day, Sunday, went down to Cabin. I don't know what Cabin he's referring to. Yeah. Decided to move Phone up to our new camp, meaning the camp on Salmon Mountain. Yeah. The next day, repaired phone line from camp on to on top of Salmon Mountain in afternoon, build fence for horses. Do you think they had just like a big spool? Is how they were putting the phone line through, like a big... It came in, I don't know originally, but I know from way back in descriptions of this sort of thing, that number nine telephone wire came in big rolls. Oh. And some of them weighed like 200 pounds. Now, I think they would split them sometimes so they could pack you know a roll on each side of a mule oh makes a couple sense. hundred pounds is doable you know they don't like to push it up to that but yeah. you know you can depending on the terrain our packers we've talked about that at west fork a lot it's like for a short distance you can kind of get away with it it's hard but you know it's doable but trying to haul a 
200 pounds of wire, let's say seven or eight miles up to the top of Spot Mountain, you kind of don't want to do that. No, hard on the It's really hard on the animals, yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know really what the answer is because he doesn't describe how they did it, but generally that's how that wire came, so I'm assuming that was probably what they did. Yeah, that makes sense. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, just, you know, going to Salmon, uh, such and such a person going out to Wa Mountain. Wa Mountain is, there's a there's a ridge out beyond Salmon, 13 Mountain, Wa Mountain, Lost Packer Peak. And all of those were used at one point or another back in those days as lookout points. They didn't oh. have a building on them, but they were... Maybe not even necessarily tent camps, because Ray doesn't mention all of them, and all or all of them being tent camps, but that they were patrol points probably. Oh yeah, yeah. In those days, you know, that after a big lightning storm, people would hike or ride horse out to these places to look around. Yeah. And probably go to a fire if they found one. Yeah, kind of like today with the engine. Sometimes you you go park on a high point that you yeah know, was getting some activity the night before. Yeah, just check it out. Yeah. And he mentions an 820, 1915. He just says, look, went on lookout. And then I had put a question mark. Salmon? Very smoky. Hamilton and I went south of Salmon Mountain. And this other guy went north to Magruder Ridge and discovered a fire. He put it out with his hands, a hot, small fire. I fell down two times today. The first time for four days and doing well. And then Forest Supervisor White called up from telephone camp. It's just interesting stuff like this yeah, where he mentions ca- place names that I know of, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Kind of interesting, so, like, detail that will put in, like, falling down, and but then, like, not as specific, like, with the cabin, you know. It's kind of funny. So then in 19—this is 1915, and it's the first reference we have that any of us have found anyway— of salmon being used as a lookout point. And so there's some questions as to where their camp actually was. There's a spot across from the rock pile that the lookout is built on now, right on the top of the mountain there, which might be a likely spot, but there's no water there. So I'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, this was the first first reference to salmon so as far as we know it's the first established point on the bitterroot forest that was used as a lookout in 1915 oh no way so that's kind of cool that's really cool yeah um and then the next one is i'll back off just a little bit and we're going to kind of jump from district to district here too yeah cool these are from my interviews i interviewed on June 7th of 1981, I interviewed Gilbert Lord, who was a roving lookout in the Sula area in 1917. How do you know something like that existed? So Gilbert Lord's father was named Bertie Lord, and his father came to our valley in the 1880s, I think, in the Sula area. And Before Montana was a state? They homesteaded on, on Warm Springs Creek. Yeah. Warm Springs Creek is where, not Medicine Hot Springs, but uh, there's a campground up there and stuff. Oh. Yeah. So I I had, and I'm not going to read all these. I'll just kind of read some parts of it. Yeah. So this was one of my 
not my first interview, but one of the early ones. I visited Gilbert Lord as his home's on, home on Warm Springs Creek. He was born in the house I visited. It's still there, actually. Oh, it's, wow. It's a two-story log house, and it's still there. That is so cool. It was built by his grandfather and was the longtime resident of Gilbert's father, Bertie Lord. Gilbert spent some time on lookouts in the summer of 1917. Gologly was the Sula Ranger District, then called the Camp Creek Ranger Station. Uh, Gologly spent part of his time at the old Medicine Hot Springs Station. So if they had a cabin, Forest Service built a cabin, it was called a ranger station. Oh. Even though it wasn't like a full-fledged ranger station. But there was a cabin up Blodgett, where the campground is now. Oh, really? It was called the Blodgett Ranger Station. They were all over the place. Yeah, but not like the same as today's standard as a ranger station. Right, right. Yeah. right. There were, all those cabins were called ranger stations. Uh, there were no permanent lookout structures on the Sula District and no established tent camps in those days. Being a lookout consisted of hiking to a high point up Warm Springs one day to survey the country and up toward Elk Point on another day Elk Point is way up beyond Sula Peak if you follow that ridge way on up. Oh, good sir. Um, let's see, to survey to Elk Point on another day. If, if, they, if anyone saw any smoke on this hike, they would report them. I'm not sure how they reported them because they didn't have telephone lines yeah, or anything wondering. like yeah. that. Uh, and they were then sent to fight the fire. Oh, I have a note here. They didn't carry smoke chaser gear on these day hawks, and they walked. No horses. Fire gear was obtained at the station if they were to be sent on to a fire. So I guess if they spotted one, they had to go back down and tell whoever, and then they'd get their gear and go to it. Oh, wow. Kind of inefficient. But, no, yeah. You know, that's this is a long time ago. Yeah. Um, he recalled spending his 17th birthday on a fire way up over Witch Creek that you can see that over Witch Country from some of the high points from the Medicine Point area and stuff. And Medicine Point, even though it wasn't a lookout then, was way up behind Warm Springs Creek. So it was a natural place because you could look down on the West Fork side. Yeah, That was what was cool about it was when I was up there, you know, it's right on the dividing line between the Sula and, and West Fork districts. And you could look down into Picker Creek and across and back into that country behind Saddle Mountain where the ski area is, you know. Yeah. It had a good view of stuff that you couldn't see from other places. Yeah. Uh, let's see. He recalled spending his 70, 17th birthday on a fire up over which that had been reported by a sheep herder. By the time Gilbert and several others got to it, the fire was around 600 acres and they couldn't do much. The fire was rained out. He spent time as a per diem guard off and on during the summers of the 20s and 30s. The Forest Service installed a phone at his home. He lived in the, a two-story log house. That's the one I told you that's still there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's see, if a fire was reported in his area, the Forest Service would call him and he would be paid while he was out on fire. That is wild. They put a phone in his house so then they could be like, hey, we got yeah. a fire in your area. They did that at the Whetstone Ranch also, oh, which really? it's still there. Yeah. Bobby and Brian inherited that property that they're 
their dad's dad had homesteaded in the late 1800s. Wow. Yeah, That's and they cool. actually in their I remember going to visit Brian there when he was on the crew with us in in the early 80s. Yeah. And out in their one of their shop buildings, an old wooden shop building, they still had an old smoke chaser pack on the wall in really? there and everything cuz the forest service let them keep some supplies there if they got called on the phone to go on a fire they could they oh, wouldn't have to man. go down to camp creek to the ranger station or sula now yeah yeah. they could just go out to the shed and get their stuff and go for it yeah more efficient that way i'll have to ask susan that's so cool yeah and then i had put at the end hopefully a taped interview with gilbert will follow in later july but never got it it didn't oh man so then the next one was an interesting story, not in my interview, but I was looking for some information about, every once in a while I'll just get on the internet and plug in Bitterroot place names, you know, yeah. and tack, look out on the end of the name or something just to see what might show up. Mm -hmm. And I did that, it's probably about five years ago now, not that long ago. Yeah. And this reference to something called the Nez Perce Peakers came up. Hmm. The N-E-Z, separate word, P-E-R-C-E, Peakers, P-E-A-K-E-R-S. And it referenced the Anaconda Standard Newspaper, Sunday, October 20th, 1918. Somebody mentioned this article in the Lookout Network magazine, so I'm sure some people have heard about it but maybe not looked it up so yeah i never heard of it i got on the internet and i looked up the anaconda standard well the anaconda standard i don't think is functional anymore but back yeah. in that era when anaconda was where the smelter was for yeah. the butte mining yeah all the, the trains bought all the copper there yeah Apparently, it had quite the reputation as a good newspaper and had really good reporters and stuff that, that were involved with it. Yeah. And this guy had written this article called the Nez Perce Peakers, and it came out on October 20th, 1918. And it was about basically about a school teacher in Butte who wanted to do her part for the World War I effort and she'd grown up and had made trips to the Bitterroot camping with her family and that sort of thing. Yeah. And she approached the supervisor of the Bitterroot Forest then in Hamilton and said she wanted to do her part for the war effort and was there anything she could do for the summer, like staff a lookout or anything to help out? And he wrote her back and said, yes, you can come over and staff one of our lookout points. And if you want to, you can bring a friend with her and we'll pay her too. Oh, wow. So. That's cool. <laughs> so, yeah. And it, it was hard to read because a lot of those old Anaconda standard newspapers, they, I don't, I don't know that they digitized them, but you can, you can find them on a website and, see the whole newspapers yeah like archive there, but they yeah. had pictures of like the whole one whole page at a time you know and yeah. so i was able to blow up these pictures as much as i could because the quality of the the original photographs or mimeograph or whatever they did 
to get all these things weren't the best. Yeah. And so on my computer, you know, I could print them, but I had to play with how big or how small I could do it because if it was too small, I couldn't read it. And if it was too big, it blurred it, the, out. It blurred out, yeah. you know, so there was just a fine line and I wasted a lot of paper trying to do it. <laughs> and I couldn't do the whole page at once. I did. I did a picture of it, but you, there was no way you could make it work. So I had oh, yeah. to just do parts of it. So I got the whole article and I just kind of pieced it all together, you know, so that I could I could read it and everything. Yeah. And it tells about them coming over. And so they got, he had told them that they could staff a tent camp on Nez Perce Peak. Hmm. That's where they became the Nez Perce Peakers. Oh. She and her friend. That's the name. Hey. Yeah. And he mentioned also at the time that in this article that another school teacher from Butte also got selected to come over and staff the bear cone. So the earliest reference we have to anything going on on bear cone was 1922 when the first log structure was built up there. But this in 1918 shows that it was being used as a lookout point and had a tent camp. Probably it didn't mention it, but had a tent camp just like Nez Perce Peak did. Yeah. So they came out, and he describes in the article uh, that their tent camp was a quarter mile or something below the top of Nez Perce Peak, and they had a spring down nearby, and they had two tents, one they lived in and one for supplies, and the pack string took them up there and took up supplies. And one of her... One of the things that she wanted to do that summer was uh, visit the site of the Salmon Mountain tent camp. Oh. And so Vance, Vance Saddle is named after a ranger named Vance who was uh, in that country back in those days. And Vance and his wife took her and her friend on a pack string out to Salmon. It took like two days to get out there. It was a long way yeah. by trail. Yeah. And he describes the trail and it's it's one that isn't really usable anymore, but I found old maps that show the exact route that they took. They ended up leaving following Deep Creek and down by Pole Mountain, which is just up from above where the CCC camp was in the thirties. Oh yeah, yeah. They would cut across Pole Mountain into Hell's Half Creek follow Hell's Half Creek down, and she described the desolation at Hell's Half area. Oh. There was no lookout there then. Yeah, yeah. And so the name had already been given to it at that point, but it's probably because of what you know, she described, that destruction. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that trail would wind its way down to the Solway River and across and past Langdon Butte and stuff up to Salmon. And you could see it on those old maps that it was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they went out to Salmon, and she doesn't say anything other than that it was neat. And then they came back and went back to the lookout. And then she and her friend were on their own again. And they had a lightning storm and there was a fire. And it was real close by where their camp was. And they went to the spring and got water. And the two of them actually went down and did their own smoke chaser gig and put it out. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Man. And that, you know, women were, it was pretty rare for women to be on lookouts before before the 30s really at all oh. and really not 
that much in those days. Yeah. It was, you know, that kind of chauvinist attitude that, you know, women can't do this kind of work and blah, 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 you yeah. know. Stuff that we all know is totally untrue. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but that was kind of the prevailing mentality back in those days. Yeah. And then they had another little fire um, that was started by somebody by accident, a sheep herder or something that was real close by, and they put out, put that out too. Yeah, badass chicks. So women doing lookouts on the Bitterroot in 1918. Yeah, put that, out fires and look at, do the lookout gig. That's, that's cool. cool. And really it's not cool. a very good picture, but here's a picture of the two of them. Oh, wow. I think I've seen I, I that photo before. Yeah, you might have. And you probably can't see it very well, but yeah, hope they, were all, a bit. they were all decked out in riding togs and that sort of thing. Riding togs for horses and stuff like that. And Yeah, big flat brim hat on the one gal, it looks yeah, like, huh? That's, that's the lady that was actually Mrs. Mabel Green Greenup, I think was her name. Oh. Yeah. Nez Perce Speakers. The Nez Perce Speakers, 1918. That's cool. That is so cool, man. <laughs> So then the next interview I did was with Ben Hackett. I mentioned the Hackett family. Mm-hmm. And Sandy had told me that she thought Ben Hackett had been, been a lookout way back on the West Fork. So, and that his, his son um, had been a lookout in 19... No, one of the other relatives had been a lookout in 1950 on Ward Mountain up oh. behind Hamilton. Yeah. There was an L4 up there then. So I entered a, I did a, a taped interview with both of them and I had never listened to it again between April well, let's see, wait, March thirtieth March fifth, nineteen eighty one. I went to their home ranch and I interviewed both of them and I taped it an oh, interview cool. with each of them. Benny's was 15 minutes long and Prescott's was a little bit longer, but I still have to describe to transcribe Prescott's. But a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago now, I transcribed. It was tough. I had to keep back in my cassette recorder back up and forth and back and forth. Because yeah. Sandy said that he mumbled and he kind of did. Oh, yeah. But I was able to pretty much get it all down, you know, what what I had asked him and everything. And I I put I, I conducted this oral history interview with Ben Hackett at the family ranch west of Victor, Montana, near the mouth of Sweathouse Creek on the date above, and that I also interviewed Prescott on the same day. Um, the interviews with both were on my cassette recorder. The following is a transcript, and I, I just did this on my computer, you know, just like a month and a half ago or whatever. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, and he did mumble, kind of. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but... I was able to figure most of it out. The first time listening to this cassette tape since making the original recording, um, I discovered during playing it back, there were some short segments of the interview with Ben where it was difficult to hear well what he said. And then I represented in my transcript those omitted segments with dotted lines, dot, dot, dot. So, Reen, I asked Ben, when did you have lookout experience with the Forest Service? He said, I think it was 1921 or 1922. And then I had a note that on the back of the photos that he let me borrow to make copies of, he had written 1920 on the back of them. Oh, yeah. So he was, he was born in 1900, so he was 81 when I interviewed him wow. in, in 81. Yeah. I said, which lookout were you on? Salmon Mountain. Was there a structure up on Salmon then? No, just a pile of rocks. 
At this point, I showed Ben a photo that I had been given by the regional office in Missoula of the rock pile lookout on Salmon Mountain. The current lookout is, and the one that preceded it were both built on this rock pile. It's, it's just a big pile of rocks, and they're still there. But oh, really? It's just that they flattened it off to build a building on them. Yeah, yeah. But they, this old picture that they gave me, and Kresik has it in his book, too, of Salmon, it looks like a rock fort. It's kind of got like a higher point on each of the four corners, but it's just a big pile of rocks and an opening opening inside. And they had a big rock that a stump sat on that the portable Alliday board was on. Oh, that's cool. And that's what those guys had in 1915 too, I'm sure. Oh. But we didn't have a photo of it until these that Benny let me borrow to make copies of when he was up there in 1920 that yeah. were taken then. And... So I said, do you remember back in those days what your pay rate was? No. <laughs> Did you work for a couple of seasons? Just one. And I said, Salmon, of course, had no road to it then. Was it a project for you to just get to the lookout? He said it took two days Holy. from the end of that. He didn't mention it, but from the end of that road, because that's where it ended, was where the pavement ended now on the Nez Road. Wow. So they'd ride out and camp and then go again that's nuts yeah i said did they have the station down at deep creek later called magruder no it wasn't there then oh wow um what kind of training did they have for you guys he said i didn't have any <laughs> Just go out i said there. really go out there and figure it out <laughs> in, the, in the tape i'm like really yeah. he says well i don't know because you see my brother had been up there the year before this was kind of confusing and he was going to stay at the home ranch. So he was supposed to be on the lookout, oh. but just before the 4th of July, he, he decided not to go. And the boy they had on salmon quit. And one was going as a smoke chaser. And then I was going to go up as the lookout. We took two horses with us. We weren't supposed to have horses. Oh, so you took, you two took your own horses. He says, too far from any place, so the only way to get out, I assume you can get out if anything went wrong, oh, you know, yeah. so they could leave. So did they let you guys take firearms up there? Oh, yes, you bet. <laughs> so you guys were packed in there? Yeah. Did they have an alladade board in the middle of the rock pile for you? Yes. Where did you live? Down over the hill a little ways, there was a spring, and we had a tent and a fly there. So you'd have to hike up to the lookout? You've been there? Well, I hadn't. I, I'd flown over it with my friends that I told you had the little plane, yeah, yeah. but I'd never been there on the ground. He said the spring was maybe about a quarter mile from the top. Well, maybe not a quarter of a mile. And so, so there's a question about where that was because the only spring that all of us know about is not quite a quarter of a mile below the lookout up above this small southern tributary to Three Lakes Creek Lake. Oh. There's nothing flat there. And the pictures, the two pictures he gave me of the tent camp, it's flat ground. Huh. So it couldn't have been down there. Yeah. So this is, I've talked to William Boggs, who staffed Salmon in 71. He's like, that's crazy. There's no way that there was a flat ground down there. I said, well, I want to look around this summer, but there's not much point in it because there's no flat ground there. Yeah. So I talked to Charlie Mabbitt, who was a longtime wilderness ranger on West Fork, just a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about this. And Charlie said, he's 
tramped all over that country. He worked at West Fork from the late 70s as a wilderness ranger through about probably about eight years ago oh, when he retired. And he said, when you're at Salmon and you look back down the hill where the trail is, which was a road in the old days oh. up to the top, they had built that road right about 1928 when they put the first log cupola cabin up there. Oh, That's cool. how they got the parts up there. And then when it became part of the Frank, it was shut off from being a road. And it's it's you can still tell that it was a road, but it's a trail now. Oh. No motorized vehicles or anything anymore. Yeah. Charlie said, if you look from the lookout back down the hill, you can kind of look off to the right, and there's an area that's real green, and there are patches of trees there and stuff. And he said, I'll bet you that's where it was. Yeah. So to, this summer when I go up there, I'm going to tramp around down there a little bit. I mean, I, you never know. Maybe I'll find an insulator on a tree because they said that the tree was near where the spring was. So, Oh, for the phone line. I'm going to take a look around. Yeah, I'll go with you. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's see. I said, did the Forest Service supply your food? Yeah, I recall it was about two weeks or a month a pack string would come in. You'd have to call them up on the phone and order what you wanted. Oh, so you had a phone line? Yes. And this is before I knew about the 1915 phone line. I didn't know when they had put a phone line up there. Yeah. Uh, did they have a phone by... Did they have a phone by where your camp was? Yes, down by the camp. And if you had a fire, you had to go down there to report it. Oh, man. Which is, if you've ever, well, you haven't been to no, Salmon, no. but it, that was not very functional. And I bet you that didn't last too much longer before they went ahead and ran the phone light up to the top. Yeah. Yeah, because the maps from like 1922 and stuff like that show show the phone line. Oh, really? Yeah, going by the top. Uh, so if, if you had a fire, you had to go down there to report it? Yes. <laughs> so I said, so they had a lookout and a smoke chaser, right? And he said, yes, together. And did you ever have to do any of the smoke chasing? Well, that summer we only had one fire, and that was all. Um, and we used to go down to a lake below us and do our washing, a thunderstorm came up, and there were a bunch of trees down there, and they had lightning hit a, a lightning hit a tree and started a fire. We couldn't do much, so we went back up and got a crosscut saw, felled it, and rolled it down to the lake, and that was it, the only fire we had. Oh, really? Well, that's exciting, though. Yeah. Yeah. So he just, you know, goes on and mentions some other stuff, but it was, it was pretty cool that, you know, 1920, whew, a long time ago. That is, man. Yeah. Holy cow. And that he still remembered a lot of the stuff, you know, about what he did up there and everything. Yeah, that's kind of cool. There's a little bit of mystery attached with the, the camp, you know, that no one really knows yet, which you'll probably find this summer, and hopefully I'm with you. Yeah. So this interview was done with an individual named Kelly Robbins, hmm. and I did it on November 20th in 1980 at his home in Hamilton. And Kelly Robinson is now, this is 1980, mm -hmm. Kelly Robinson is now 87 years old. He worked for the Forest Service for two seasons, 1922 and 1923, both seasons on the Sula District, which was the Camp Creek District back then. Yeah, yeah. He was 29 years old, his first FS season. That first season, 
uh, he did a little bit of lookout work up the medicine tree drainage. Oh, yeah. Hiking to a high point to check out the surrounding countryside. So Luke and I talked about this not too long ago. You were asking me some questions about about that creek or another one close by it. Yeah. And I, I said that Crockett had mentioned to me that he had heard when he first came to Sula in 65 from some old timers that there was a look, might've been a lookout tree up Medicine Tree Creek. Oh yeah. And so this might've been what was actually up there. It was just a patrol point somewhere up Medicine Tree Creek that they would hike to. I look, I Not necessarily a tree. Cause Jim had looked all around and had never found anything up there. Yeah, and he probably would have saw some, some yeah. leftover so stuff. So that's probably what it was, was just a patrol point. Yeah, I saw it on a map after we talked. I found an old map, and it's there. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, he recalled $100 a month was his pay. His oh. second season, he was a lookout smoke chaser on Fish Lake Peak. So Fish Lake Peak was back south of the Three Lakes Creek drainage, Faith, Hope, and Charity, oh. which are kind of on the Sula boundary with the forest on the other side. Is that what they call the chain of lakes? Is that the same? Yeah, chain of lakes. Oh, gotcha. There's a chain of lakes trail, and there's a, I don't think that you can use it anymore, but there was an off-road vehicle trail out there too. Oh, wow. But Fish Lake Peak was a cupola lookout. Oh. So anyway, he was out on Fish Lake Peak. He said, so this was 1923. His wife spent the summer with him there. And at this point in time, he says, there was no lookout building on the peak. Kelly and his wife lived in a tent in a saddle a few hundred yards down from the top of the mountain. There was a spring right by their tent, good volume, ice cold. He said they were supplied by pack string periodically. The closest road was eight miles from the lookout. They supplied their own food and the Forest Service didn't pay for it. I hmm. asked him if they were able to store any meat and he said they could keep a limited amount quite well by lowering it in the spring in a waterproof box. Oh, milk was canned. He was classified as a lookout smoke chaser and was responsible for spotting and, if necessary, traveling to fires within a three-mile radius of the lookout. He didn't have to smoke chase that summer of 1923. They did have a telephone line, uh, which came to their tent. If any fires were spotted outside that three-mile radius, he would call the East Fork Guard Station, the cabin that's down there. Oh, yeah. Uh, that we called the guard camp, it, which was like the second home on the third season of the Bitterroot Hotshot Crew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, and then they'd send out, they'd call, he'd call down there and they would send men out to, to the fire. He said he spotted three fires that summer. I asked him if the phone system worked well. He said it did and that it was reliable. I asked him about his alidade. He said it was mounted permanently on a post on top of the peak. Hmm. It was oriented, and he had a drawstring line across it to get degrees to a fire and read the map on the board. So it was an alidade that didn't have the the tape that we have on the Osbournes now. Oh, yeah. That, you know, you line up. He had to put a string across that lined up with where the fire was and then he could read the degrees oh wow! same thing just yeah. a little cruder yeah, way of yeah. doing it um i asked him if he was required to visit any patrol points from fish lake peak and he said no 
I asked him if he could recall any other permanent struckers for lookouts on Sula in those days, and he said he didn't, other than he thought there might have been somebody on Hilltop, oh. but he wasn't sure. Yeah. His major duty, of course, was fire spotting, and he said he normally would hike to the mountaintop by 7 every morning and spend the day up there except for a trip down for lunch. Sometimes his wife would come up and bring lunch up, in which case he'd stay up there all day. Oh, if he spotted a fire, he'd have to run down to the camp to the phone to report it. Uh, he named a, a person named McCart as the fire control man at the guard camp. And then mm. I, I had question, is this who the later lookout site was named after? Yeah, Probably was. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. I said it's an interesting fact that his major project of the summer of 23 was to cut logs on the top of the peak. These were used the next year to construct the permanent lookout building. I asked him about spare time activities. He said he got pretty bored. The log cutting was his biggest project and it wasn't that time consuming. He didn't have books. There weren't any radios to listen to. There weren't any other visitors other than an occasional Forest Service employee. A sheep camp tender who worked for the Bitterroot Stock Farm, Daly's operation, oh. would come up to visit a few times. He must have had a sheep camp out there somewhere. Yeah. Kelly said he hiked to Fish Lake a few times. It's a small lake that's down below the lookout. It's kind of a pretty spot oh, nice. to fish a few times. Yeah. He couldn't recall there being any women on lookouts anywhere around in those days. Mm. I asked about game, and he said there was lots and recalled surprising a bull moose on the trail to the lookout site. Um, and aside, Kelly is a World War I veteran and spent eight months in France during World War I. Oh, wow. He was a Ravalli County Sheriff for 18 years and a championship trail rider Whoa! Yeah. after this lookout experience. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Had good history. Living yeah. Life, sound like. And then the last place, pace was just a lot of stuff that I had jotted down when I interviewed him. So as soon as I would get home from these interviews, that's when I like wrote this narrative down while it was all still fresh in my mind and I could refer to my notes yeah and it worked pretty it. good i mean i was able to since i didn't let a time lapse i could you know remember it pretty well yeah so he, he was a klyq radio reference that got a hold of me oh really yeah oh that's cool yeah so that's pretty cool yeah the radio was working so the first interview that i did on this project wait let me make sure here yeah, KLYQ reference. This was my first lookout interview as a project. It was with a man named Crawford Smoss. Hmm. I did this on November 20th, 1980. Uh, and it was at his home in Hamilton. Crawford staffed Hell's Half in 1927 and 28, and Blue Nose and Long Tom in 1949 and 50. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Crawford Smoss is now 75 years old. All told, he worked for the Forest Service seven seasons, so actually he worked a little more than I had written up here. They included the field seasons of 1925, 26, 27, 28, 29, and then 1949 and 50. The first four seasons, 25, 6, 7, and 8, 
including a good deal of lookout experience. But he spent the 27 and half of 28 on Hell's Half, uh, which I think was part of the West Fork District then. Oh, we'll get you. Or maybe Deep Creek. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Doesn't really matter. Um, let's see. Crawford graduated from high school and just turned 20 when he started his first season in 1925. His first job was with the Sula District working on bug control project up the East Fork. He worked with Fred and Edgar Whetstone. They were some of the first Whetstones to live in the valley. And the old Whetstone homestead is right before that right before the guard camp area on the left mm. there's an old log cabin there and somebody else owns the property now but that was where the first homestead was oh yeah and there's a big field there and there used to be a dirt airstrip along the edge of the of the east fork road oh, really? that was called whetstone field oh cool yeah and we had we used it for helicopter stuff on fires out there in the 80s. Oh, really? Yeah, if we had a fire out further in the wilderness or whatever, that's where they'd we'd bring the supplies and they'd build the sling nets and stuff there. Oh, very cool. And take off for wherever. Yeah. Wherever we were. Yeah. Um, let's see. So he worked on the bark beetle thing and uh, he also went to West Fork sometimes during those seasons to do fires and that sort of thing. Oh. He said that he felt he thought his first pay in 25 was $70 a month, but by 29 he was making 110. So all these guys for some of the same years had different totals for the pay. So yeah. I mean, it kind of doesn't really matter, but it wasn't a lot, you know. No, yeah. But you know, you got to figure too, but buying power of stuff was back in the 20s. I mean, I looked up some of the cost of grocery things in those early years. I mean, and you could get like a a a fifty pound bag of potatoes for like ten cents and stuff like that. Yeah, a dollar went so, a lot further. Yeah, a dollar went a lot further. Yeah. Yeah. So um he said he did a variety of jobs with the Forest Service back in the Solway country when he was out there, helped build trails, drunk phone line cleared and repaired lines knocked down in the winter phone lines knocked down in the winter helped build bridges helped build some of the first buildings log buildings at uh, magruder deep creek ranger station fought fires etc and then most of those things were done early and late season and then he did lookout stuff during the main part of the summer um he said in those early seasons the forest service applied initially virtually all supplies for the crews and the lookouts, except for some small personal items like shaving gear and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Most of the men furnished their own pack animals, in which case a certain pay allowance was made. As far as food, you didn't pay for it, but it was, as a result, you were pretty much at the whim of the commissary at the ranger station. Uh -huh. Whatever they felt like sending you or had an overstock of was what you'd get. So you got a lot of canned beans and things like that. <laughs> yeah, but not a lot of variety probably too. No. Oh. No, but, you know, most of these guys, and I didn't necessarily write it always down, but they almost always had a, a twenty two or bigger rifle with them and a pistol. And they were kind of expected to get grouse and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, to meat. supplement their 
beans. Yeah. <laughs> he said that there were no roads to any of the lookouts out in those days, and pack strings were the way that stuff got to the lookouts. Oh, gotcha. Um, and that most of it came from Allen Ranger Station, which there was a there were some cabins right there by the end of the road on the Nez, where the pavement ends now. Oh yeah. There's some old historic pictures of these funky old log buildings that were there. Oh cool. That's it was called Allen Ranger Station, and yeah. oh, that wow. was where they would base these pack strings heading out further before the road to Magruder was built or anything. That's got to be a cool spot. Is yeah. there anything left? There, no, not no. That, not that I can see. I, I'm sure that they've changed the entrance to where it's the ranches that, you know, the ranches that preceded Scripps buying it. But yeah, yeah, they're pretty funky looking buildings. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see them. Yeah, I'll show you some pictures of them sometime. Yeah. And he said it took several days to get to a location like Salmon Mountain, which, yeah, that's what the lady in 1918 said. Yep. From that same area, it took two days to get out there. Dang. Yeah. Um, he said fire training, lookout and fire training always took place at what they called a guard camp. It was a training week. And this was about the only place where you'd get to see the whole crew, the firefighters and the other lookouts and that sort of thing. Because after the guard camp was over, everybody scattered out to wherever lookout they were going to be or whatever ranger station guard cabin or whatever else they were going to be at. Oh, yeah. And they usually didn't see one another until folks came off of those and then started doing fall projects and that sort of thing. Yeah. Kind of like now, you know, lookouts are up and those that might, like Tanner, that are lucky enough to work at Steve I before and after he gets done then he comes back down and and what i got to do from medicine point and that sort of thing go back down to work at sula yeah totally his first season well his season in 27 and 28 were on hell's half acre mountain he was there before the lookout tree platform which is there's a picture of it in krusik's book it was just a tree that was stripped of all bark and they put these like wooden step deals in it oh, and it had like a little a little cage deal made out of wood and you could sit in there and had an alidate board on a stump in front of you and you'd look around whoa so that's yeah where was that at on the top of hell's half on the top of hell's half wow he was there before that was even there oh wow so he said uh and he knew about the tree platform. He said this was before the tree platform or any actual building. He lived in a tent and had another tent to keep supplies in. He had his own horse up there for his use. He'd be resupplied periodically uh, via pack string. And then I had, I put, as I said before, when food was brought to him, and he had, he had little control over what he got from the station. He had to haul his water supply via canvas, backpack, bag, and others referred to these canvas water bags i've never saw i never saw one yeah, i wonder but, it's kind of interesting to see you know probably you know have you ever heard about and i remember when i was a little kid and we'd drive back to visit the relatives in kansas and the old pontiac 1947 pontiac that my parents had yeah those water bags that they put on the front you fastened it on the front bumper of your car and they were kind of like a canvas burlap thing oh, really? but they'd breathe and so as you were driving the air would cool 
the water inside of this. And they, they primarily, they, they weren't the ones we had. They weren't for drinking water. They were for if your radiator started to get too hot that you had a couple of gallons of water that you could, when it cooled off enough, that you could take the cap off that you could pour in it. Oh, that's a But I, I guess it was kind of the same idea. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen one, but I've never... I've never seen one of them. Yeah, they probably won't, be, won't survive that long, right? They probably dry rot. Probably long gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe the Forest Service Museum up in Missoula has some. I don't know. I know. Um, let's see. He had to haul the water. He was lucky though, because where the Upper Outfitter Camp is nowadays, there's a spring there, and that's maybe, maybe a half a mile, if that, below the lookout. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Our folks don't usually use it because it's in the outfitter camp. So oh. if you drive back down the road to maybe a mile below, there's a place where the spring comes out of a hillside and there's a plastic pipe there. And that's where most of the folks go down from Hell's Half to fill their water cans. Oh, you can drive right to it and put your water back in the car and then go back up. Oh, that's probably really yeah. good water too. Huh? So he was lucky. He had water close by at least. Yeah. Um, let's see... He said the Alliday board was mounting on a board on top of the mountain, and he had to clear trees to help improve his view. He said that this Alliday was off about a quarter section, and when other lookouts, because they had a phone line, other lookouts would shoot an azimuth and triangulate. His legal was always just a little bit different than theirs. Oh, gotcha. Oh, well. Yeah, so they I managed. guess they still made it work. I was going to say, yeah, they just adjusted, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he says he, he didn't have communications at the beginning. And if he spotted a fire, he'd just go to it and take care of it himself. Oh. And he said a lot of times people didn't even know if he was on the lookout. So I'm not yeah. sure how how he triangulated with the others if he didn't have a phone line, but I, I, I didn't think to ask him about that. So maybe he did have a phone line. I don't know. Yeah, must have. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't, really, doesn't really matter, I yeah. guess. Uh, Pet pigeon or something. Nobody came up. No general hikers or backpackers or anything. That wasn't kind of really very popular back that far. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. I asked him if there were any women on lookouts in those days, and he didn't recall any being in the Solway country, in the Solway country at all. Mm. Um, he said occasionally if a lookout was married, his wife might manage to be up there but not common oh, gotcha. and i asked him if he knew of any situations where two people manned the staff to look out he said he started doing that around 28 when he was on salmon but yeah. he didn't have anybody else with him and he said one would be the lookout and one would be the smoke chaser and they'd alternate going to fires oh yeah each time um i asked i asked him if he was paid overtime in those days and he said yes Oh really? But others said no. So, I I wonder if it was like just a a district by district decision or something too. I don't know. Oh, it could have been. Yeah. Who knows what the rules were? You know, back in that far ago. Yeah. Rangers probably had leeway to kind of do. That's what, the, what they felt like doing. Kind of justify it. You I know. Yes, I don't. Yeah. Know. Um, as far as working and firefighting equipment, weren't there weren't any real special tools in those days, although. Pulaski had been invented, you know, back then, but I don't know how universally it was used yet. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, shoot, by the time I I and others came along, well before me, they were everywhere. 
Yeah. But back in the twenties, late twenties. Yeah, because maybe Plas- not. Yeah, because Pulaski himself probably made it around just after nineteen ten or something like that. I think right the history. Yeah, Pulaski. Yeah, shortly after. Yeah. yeah, so I think he built he built a lot of the first ones himself. You know, so who knows when they became important enough that they were commercially mass made, mass produced. Yeah, yeah. And that we all got them. Uh, Hell of a tool still used today. No sleeping bags. One carried a blanket roll to a fire to a job site. Um, when they built bridges and stuff, lumber for planks was whipsawed. You know, they had a, a ditch and those tall cross cuts. Yeah. And they'd sob them down it. Whipsaw. Crazy stuff. Yeah, like, I've seen pictures of that. That's crazy. That is. Bridges were erected with ropes and pulleys. Trails were dug by hand and occasionally with the help of a little blasting powder, he said. Oh, hey. Um, I asked him on what he did for spare time on his lookout for entertainment, etc. That A lot of them didn't have books or anything, you know, and there really wasn't a heck of a lot that you could do. And it's like, man, man, I had my Xenotron, Oceanic, Crockett yeah. let me take up as many books as I wanted, you know. Yeah. Things were way different. But he said... What he'd do was he'd ride his horse from Hell's Half out to wherever he could to look over the countryside. He did a little prospecting. Oh, cool. And he did that. He said, I didn't have any books and, of course, no radio to listen to or anything. Yeah. I asked him how you got an FS job back in those days. And he said it was a selection from an application one would send in. Hmm. And he said he thought they got paid once a month, but he'd just let the checks stay at the ranger station and pick them up at the end of the season. Kind of didn't really need them up there. Yeah, yeah, nothing to buy. Probably lose them, you know? Yeah. Need them for Firestarter or something. Who knows? Yeah. But, you know, also I had heard that uh, way back in those days, the population of the Bitterroot Valley wasn't really gigantic. And there was a huge pool of people that were, you know, if you didn't live in Hamilton and owned or worked in a store or were a doctor or something like that, you lived on ranches and farms. Yeah. And so a lot of these guys that got jobs with the Forest Service were ranch kids. Yeah. Or their dads. You know, sometimes their dads would even get hired, you know, if they were young enough to still be able to go to fires and do stuff. And so word of mouth, people knew people who knew people, you know, and yep. the rangers were, you know, a lot of them were local or had lived around long enough that they knew who had a kid that was old enough and strong and thought he might work out or whatever. Yeah, capable, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of how it worked, you know. So when he went to Blue Nose uh, in 49, Blue Nose was an L4, the one that's up there now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's still up there and not in very good shape. No. So it's an L4 said, with like a... Oh, sorry. No, what were you going to say? Oh, was it, So like it's an L4 with like a garage attached to it or something. Yeah, like, right? the, it was it and... Um, Oriana and Bear Trap and what's the chalice now, that style was real famous. They made a lot of those down there. They had a log base with big double doors that some of them, you could, you could drive a vehicle into it. Yeah. And the L4 style lookout was built on the top of that. And on some of those, the staircase came down the outside like they do now, but some of them, the staircase like for Blue Nose, came down inside the base. Oh, whoa. I'm not sure why the difference, but... No wonder. 
I guess just whoever built it, you know, had the option of doing that if they wanted to. I don't yeah, know. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to cut you off, and but I wasn't sure if you no. were going to get to that or not. Yeah, no, that was that. That was the the deal in him. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that the reason he went to Blue Nose was that he developed some sort of an allergy hmm. that started in those years when he was on Hell's Half, and so. For whatever reason, you know, it was a pretty big time lapse between 28 and 49. Um, and he did other jobs, lived in Hamilton and stuff. But when he went to those lookouts, it was because he didn't want to go back to somewhere where he thinks he picked up this allergy or something. Hell's half curse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hell's half curse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, he said that he didn't have any smoke chaser duties from long Tom or, uh, blue nose, blue nose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I asked him if he had any unusual or interesting experiences with lightning from the lookouts. He recalled seeing some strikes, some strikes on the phone line leading up to the blue nose Ooh. from about a half mile below the lookout and instantaneously a blow, a blue glowing ball of light, would zip all the way up to the lookout, hit the pole outside the tower, and turn the ground coils bright red. Whoa, that'd be something to see. Yeah. Yeah. And he said quite often while that sort of thing was happening, sparks would jump out of the stove in the lookout, the cook stove. Oh, the cook stove. Jeez. His record was 120 strikes recorded in one storm from Blue Nose. 120 strikes. Yeah. He said that the Storm Creek drainage on West Fork was extremely lightning prone. Maybe that's why it was called Storm Creek. Who knows? Oh, yeah. Uh, There were many blasted snags. It was obvious that they were blasted by lightning in there. He He seemed to feel that the earth there was especially mineral rich or some such. He didn't know. Kind of magnetizing it, Could have been. Who knows? Yeah. And I put an afterthought. This was my first interview relating to this lookout project. It was great. Crawford was extremely gracious, shared photos with me, let me borrow some photos and make copies of and answered all my questions. His recollections of that early Forest Service lookout era are priceless. I enjoyed every minute of it. It's so neat that he had a camera with him in those adventurous days. Yeah. Uh, aside, and aside, he spent several years in Hollywood driving an equipment truck truck for a movie production company. I didn't recognize the name of the company. I should have written it down because now that we have Google, I probably could have found it. Yeah. He hauled cameras and other gear and occasionally actors all over Southern California. Oh, wow. He also worked many years for a seed company in the Bitterroot and was a janitor for the Elks Club in Hamilton for years. Mm. Spent 18 years on the volunteer fire department in Hamilton. He had photos of the San Diego to Coronado ferry taken in the 1920s and showed me photos of the boarding cro- of the border crossing and sheriff's office at Tijuana and the main street of Tijuana in those days. Oh, wow. And you having been there just a matter of months ago. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't take any pictures of those, but uh, yeah, I'd love to I see wish that. I had. I've been yeah. there, yeah. I've been there kind of wild. Yeah. He had a 1920s map of the Selway country showing lookout points and Alladades, blah, blah, blah. 
I'll have to check this out when I return the photos. And I later found a copy of it at Westport, and I have a copy of it. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, full life that guy had too, man. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. 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 We won't do too many more. Um, yes, yeah, it's up to you. I, we got, we still have plenty of time, right? Yeah, I think the family's gonna show We've up. We've only been talking for an hour, I guess. Uh, or, two, two hours. Oh, yeah. Right yeah. What time are they showing up? Uh, anywhere from now to, I don't know, maybe an hour or so left. So we got a little while. Okay, let's do, we'll do just a little bit more. Yeah, sounds good. Um, Let's see. Let me find. Reen, sometimes I wonder if you, man, you, you almost need like a museum or something. You know, I don't know. You got so much the cool stuff. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I I always thought, and maybe I still will if I can, that I should, I'd have to try and contact the families of these people that might still be around, but it would be neat to put all these, all these interviews in a book, yeah. in book form, you know, with these write-ups Absolutely. and transcriptions of that in yeah. them. And then people could share them and they could look up the locations I could like Kresik did in that book, I could put the the township range and sections of lookouts and people could look them up on a map. Yeah, and add some of the photos that you stuff have. Stuff like that, you know? Yeah. That'd be cool. That'd be really cool, Ree. Um That's why I love talking to you, man. Like, these stories are amazing. Jack Kyle. Jack Kyle lived in Hamilton. I interviewed him on December 10th, 1980. He was 67 then. He worked for the Forest Service for four seasons, 1930, 31, 2 through 3. Trail crew, phone line, and maintenance and firefighting in 1930. Trails in 1931, phone line repairs, and two months on Thunder Mountain Lookout on West Fork. Oh. Thunder Mountain is across Hughes Creek from Lookout Mountain. Oh, gotcha. Was there was a tent camp then? Thunder Mountain? You'll oh, find you out here sorry. Yeah. Let me jump ahead. <laughs> 1932, he did two and a half months on Nespers Peak. And in 32, the only lookout that's ever been up there other than the tent camp was the two-story Cupolo Log Lookout. Oh, yeah. So it was, I'm sure, still up there then. And then in 1933, he spent three months on salmon. He was 17 years old for his first season. He fudged his age to get the job. Oh. The Forest Service found out later, but kept him anyway. <laughs> oh, already had him trained up. You know, might as well keep you him. You know, and I, I've talked to people from, from my parents' era, who, guys that were sixteen who looked big and strong, and they lied to get into World War II and join the Marines and stuff. Jeez, man, tough know? kids then, hey. And they got in, you know, because yeah. a lot of, a lot of birth certificate stuff was kind of weird my mom didn't actually have a birth certificate printed out or anything until like 1938 or something like that and oh, she was yeah. born in 1911 yeah and they had a record of course of the birth in kansas in the little town you know that that she was born at home i think on oh. the farm but they had a record of all that stuff, and so they were able to create one. But it was real different than now where we all, you know, have them. Yeah, yeah. But things were done a little differently. Uh, Forrester was found out later, but kept him anyway. He recalls his pay the first season as $50 a month. Um, he was paid no overtime. Hmm. 
He asked, I asked about architectural style lookouts. That's Pierce Peak and Salmon. This is early 30s. We're on the ground, but both were the cupola style lookouts, which is, I've got pictures of them. They were log log lookouts yeah, for the yeah. cupola. Thunder Mountain didn't have a permanent structure when he was there in 31. Um, he lived in a tent below the top of the mountain, and the lookout was just a tree on top that he'd climb to look from, no platform in the tree. Hmm. I asked if the Forest Service supplied the food, or he had to. He said they supplied it, but he had no choice in what he received. Beans. That it suck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots of beans, probably left over from World War One or oh, something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Food orders for all the various lookouts were prepared in Missoula. He thought at the remount depot. I hope not, because it was probably mule steak or something. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> uh, he, let's see. Then uh, the things he liked best were the canned spinach, and he would trade for it whenever he could. So I guess they'd get this stuff at a ranger station before they went up. And so each lookout had a pile of stuff, and, you know, I mean, I remember bartering like that with on MREs. the hotshot crew and the district crews when we were on fires. You know, you'd yep. get in your pack and dig out the freeze dry that you had and go, hey, does anybody want to trade such and such for such and such, you know? And yeah. so these guys apparently would do the same thing, trade trade the food. <laughs> he liked to span canned spinach and went off and trade to get it. Uh. Um there was a supply of powdered eggs, canned fruit, canned butter, canned vegetables, and such. Forest Service supplied tin plates, pots, and stuff at Lookouts way back. And several bars of rough lye soap. The Ooh. bacon was canned and salted enough to last a long time once open. Isn't lye like poison? cook it in the can. That's weird. I had canned bacon. I got oh, canned yeah. bacon to take up to Medicine Point, and it was actually really good. It came in a can, and they were the can was like you know yay tall, but the bacon was in in wax paper and it was folded. So when you opened it up, the strips were like that long. Oh really? Yeah, and I I'd, I'd cook them in a frying pan on my wood cook stove or on the two burner Coleman stove, and they were actually really good. Just like regular bacon. So. Just a couple of years ago, I wondered if canned bacon still exists, so I looked on Amazon, and I found some, and so I got a can of it and took it up to salmon with me. It was horrible. <laughs> really? It was, it was just awful. Oh, no. And the stuff at Medicine Point, it's not just my memory failing. The stuff at Medicine Point was really good because yeah, they still produced it commonly, but I there's probably only like one company that makes it. It was awful. Yeah, probably the high-quality stuff. I would stuff never, anymore. ever... Since then, I've taken bacon up frozen, hiked it up frozen, and put it in the refrigerator, you know. Oh, smart. So I have yeah. real bacon. Yeah, God. It's going to be nice bacon in a lookout like that. Uh, everything's better in a lookout, I feel like. Coffee, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, and up at all the lookouts, Christy and at Salmon, we've got a percolator up there, but everybody has a, a drip or a press, oh, coffee yeah. press. Yeah. So, you know, you come down and... Get some dynamite, fresh French roast, dark coffee beans, and yeah. you know, some of them even have those little grinders. You know, you can oh, grind them up right there. Grind, grind it fresh. Got to have the good stuff, you know. Yeah, it makes the trip better, makes the experience better. 
So Jack said at each of the lookouts he had a spring. Uh, Thunder Mountains was only about a quarter of a mile from the lookout, about the same for Nespers Peak. Salmon Spring depended on that one, you know, that you went to. It was about, oh, probably quarter mile, something like that. Yeah. Um, and 100 yards. He discovered a mossy spot 100 yards from the lookout. I've never seen the mossy spot, so I don't know. I wonder. Man. I and I've hiked all over. I haven't seen anything that close to the lookout. Yeah, but, I wonder. You know, different years, different things. Maybe the water water table is different in the ground. I, who knows? Yeah. Everything's got a little drier since, hey? Lookout training was at guard school, typical to all of them. Yeah. Um, he wasn't required to smoke chase on Thunder Mountain or Nez Peak. Did occasionally on Salmon. Didn't recall a set distance that he was supposed to go. Um, it was sort of up to the individual as to what he figured he could handle reasonably. Mm. None of his lookout work required visiting any patrol points with a compass or a portable alligator, anything like that. Commo to all the lookouts was by phone, old crank telephone and wire between the trees. Mm. It was pretty reliable. Um, and they, you know, they used those split tree insulators that had extra wire up through, well, Spotted Bear, that one that runs to Jumbo still is the same way. Really? Yeah, and, and those were cool because if a tree fell across the line close to an insulator, that wire, when the insulator pulled apart, that extra wire either fall to the ground, but it wouldn't break it. Oh, you know, yeah, and in other places, if there were long runs of wire and a tree fall across, it would break it. And then you had to hike the whole the route to find where the break was, you yeah. know, and then hopefully fix it. So oh. a lot of them learned how to do telephone wire stuff. When William was on Salmon in 71, they still they had a radio, but they still had a crank phone that ran up to salmon Whoa. and so in guard school his first season he was taught how to how to climb trees and he had climbing spurs and stuff and learned how to splice and oh, do cool. all that sort of thing man so that's cool it's fun to talk to him because he still remembers exactly how he did it and everything you know yeah yeah um osborne firefinders were were common then um I asked him about what he did in spare time, and he did a lot of whittling and also crocheting. Oh. Yeah. Didn't have any radio for entertainment, had very few books. Um, an interesting activity was adding whittled links to a wooden chain that he made on Salmon Mountain. Every year, a lookout that had whittling skill would add to the chain. I wonder what ever happened to it, because I've never seen it. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder what the link would look like to keep it hooked to the... I don't know. It'd have to, like, maybe not a closed link, I guess. I don't know. I didn't I didn't really understand it well enough to ask him that question. I wish I had known. Yeah. He had two links during the season there, so it must have taken a while to carve them. Yeah. Um, he didn't have any visitors at Thunder Mountain at all. Had a shepherd come by and visit him on Nez Peak. And a Forest Service official from the RO came one time on Salmon. He saw nobody from the first week of June when he went up until he came down in late September. Oh, wow. So he was completely alone up there. Um, the only other contact with other lookouts that had phones, if he had a phone, was they were allowed to chatter in the evening after work they had closed they could oh, really? get on the line and talk back and forth 
And I remember one person even telling me in these interviews that a person on one of the lookouts had a small crank up 78 RPM phonograph deal. Oh, yeah. And he could play, you know, Benny Goodman or the the latest 1940 hits to the others, you oh, know, cool. some of these records that he took up with him through the phone and they could listen to him and that, stuff. That'd be kind that's nice. kind of cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's do just one more of the lookout interviews because I didn't do anything about Stevensville. Yes, and sounds good. We'll do, we'll do that. Um, actually, there were two that had Stevensville stuff. Let's see. S save the rest for the book. Huh? Save the other ones for the book. Yeah, you know, I've got. These are just selected ones. I mean, I've got a whole bunch of these that I didn't bring. I just looked through them to try and find the ones that maybe covered the most interesting stuff, you know? Yeah. Because they're, they're pretty similar. A lot of them are pretty similar. Oh, gotcha. Um, okay, hang on just a sec. Joe Ayers, A-Y-E-R-S, I think it was how he pronounced it, and his wife, Hazel, lived on the East Fork Road in Sula. I interviewed him in November of 1980 on the 22nd at his home he did antrim point lookout on stevensville yeah i know where that is okay joe ayers is 58 years old born in 1922 his work for the forest service for a total of two field seasons 1945 1946 he was 23 his first season so he would have been prime draft age so i don't recall asking him Military Maybe experience. Maybe a disability or something. I, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't ask him why. I probably would now. You know, there's just a lot of things back then that I was maybe a little bit shy about. Yeah. So, wait, you were draft age. How come, you know? Yeah, why don't you, yeah, why don't you in the military? But it was 45 and 46, so maybe by by 45, the summer of 45, Germany had already been defeated, yeah. and plans were, the bombs probably hadn't been dropped quite yet until late summer, and so. Who knows? Yeah. And atrium, is that how you say atrium or at, atrium point? Atrium. A antrum. 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 Hang on. Well, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, he worked approximately nine months each of those seasons, not all in the lookouts, but oh, yeah. so he got long seasons. Both both of his seasons were on Stevensville District, and he managed to look out during each. 1945 was on Palisade, which is up behind willow. where willow is now yeah willow wasn't there then it was just palisade and let's see in 1946 antrim point during the pre oh and I, I had a note down below his wife accompanied him on antrim point in 1946 they were married in january of 46 during the pre and post lookout seasons he did all kinds of things in 45 he and another guy were sent up to Superior to work on a bridge the Forest Service was constructing. While they were there, there were several hundred conscientious objectors, so Americans, who were involved with the Forest Service project that they were on. Hmm. Joe remembers a lot of them. Most of them were Quakers oh. or some of those religious groups that were conscientious objectors against any kind of war. Yeah. They were hardworking farm kids, most of them, and... They weren't shy about doing manual labor and hard work. They just 
didn't believe in war. Yeah. And so the Forest Service used a lot of them. A lot of them were treated pretty poorly by Forest Service people. Yeah, you know, made fun of them because they wouldn't go away and fight. Yeah. And actually, I found references, you know, Cooley mentions that some of the some of the Missoula jumpers and other jumpers in those days didn't like these folks. Oh. But there was a whole battalion of conscientious objectors that were smoke jumpers. Oh. Who, yeah, they were uh, basically like paratroopers, but they wouldn't go to war. And they came out during those war years to Missoula and other places to supplement the jumpers as, as firefighters and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, yeah. and they're probably like uh, low on manpower during the war effort. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. they were real low, yeah, because so many guys were gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he said he remembered them as being big, strong guys. He also helped pile brush, worked trails, did phone line maintenance, helped survey part of the rebuilding or building of the East Fork Road the Eight Mile Road, the Skalkaho Road, under a regional engineer from Missoula. On Palisade in 1945, he's pretty sure he went up around June 25th, and he recalls the closest road to Palisade, Palisade being about four and a half miles away. The trail was that long to, to the lookout anyway. Yeah. And the cabin was built right on the rocks, no upper story. I've got a picture of it, and that's exactly what it looked oh, like. Oh, cool. Supplies were brought up by pack string. He was only supplied twice, the initial trip, and in about four weeks later. He spent two, two and a half months up without coming down. The Forest Service supplied the food, but he was charged 40 cents a meal. This hmm. came directly out of his pay before he got a check. Steve I Ranger District had a commissary in the basement of the station, and he was allowed to choose pretty much what he wanted. There was an excellent choice of canned fruit. Also common was spam, canned meat, beans, and K-rats. Ooh, K-rats. Precursor of C-rats. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was guessing. Oh. And I think they all came with cigarette packages in them and stuff mm. like that. A little bonus. But he could choose all this stuff, so... They would probably set it aside for a resupply, you know, with his name on it or the name of the lookout. And then that was the stuff they grabbed when it was time to bring him oh, more. Yeah. The water in Palisade was about a half mile from the lookout. Primary container was a backpack five-gallon canvas water sack, so they were still using them then. Yeah, He'd carry the backpack and as many small containers as he could handle, sometimes up to around nine gallons total of water. Mm. There were no containers at the lookout to empty the water into, uh, and he lost a lot of water due to evaporation and leakage of the canvas containers. Mm. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Had to make even more trips. Yeah. Training was accomplished at a guard camp, same as the others. Uh, there was, Steve I had its guard, ca guard camp up Ambrose Creek, at what was called Butterfly Station. Oh, cool. 12 to 15 people in the camp both seasons. They learned fire tools, compasses, alidade work, and all that. He manned Palisade alone. He didn't have to smoke chases. And he did have a truck phone line to the Stevensville Ranger Station. Hmm. At that point in time, the Ranger Station was on Main Street in downtown Stevensville and not where the station is now. Oh, wow. That's, I never knew that. That's kind of interesting. I, had, I didn't know that before this either. Yeah. Um, 
He said the phone system was pretty reliable every once in a while. A tree had knocked down, get knocked down during the storm. Um, he said in 45, Stevensville had a lady on Antrim the year before he was there. Oh. Yeah. And then he and his wife were on Antrim and kind of the same basic duties and stuff um, as on the other one. And I did ask him if he had any special duties in 1945 that he was supposed to look for with the war going on. And he said toward the end of July in 45, all the lookouts were told to be especially alert during a certain specified time of day to see if they could see, hear, or detect any unusual vibrations. Well, it was in July of 45 that the first atomic bomb was tested down at White Sands in New Mexico. Oh. And they were probably just trying to gather information. Because, I mean, nobody knew before the thing exploded how powerful it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, there were even some theories among the scientists that they didn't think it would, but that conceivably it could ignite our atmosphere and destroy the whole planet oh so sketchy i guess you and i wouldn't be talking right now if that had to happen we wouldn't have have to worry about it (laughs) and then his wife was with him on antrim and the cool thing about antrim is that it had an l4 then and then in 1970 they built a flat top lookout there. Oh, really? And in 1973, because Antrim was on the valley floor, eight miles north of town, yeah. they didn't really need it to be there anymore um, with Willow you know, being up by the 70s and stuff like that. Yeah. So they disassembled it and they moved it to Lookout Mountain, oh. built a road to Lookout Mountain and moved it to Lookout Mountain. And it is the one and only lookout that has ever been on Lookout Mountain. It's the one that Jim and Christy staff now. Whoa. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, because like when I first saw or heard about Antrim and I saw the location, like you said, in the valley bottom, kind of in the middle there off the east side highway, I was like, wow, that's kind of a wild spot to put it. You never, I had never seen a lookout that low, I guess, you know? Yeah. And then I'll just mention her because... Like I said, women were really rare staffing lookouts, but kind of the dean of women lookouts on the Bitterroot for many years. Now it's very common, obviously, since the probably from the late 60s on. Yeah. A lot of ladies have staffed lookouts on Westport and all the districts. And, you know, Rod has been with Mark at Hell's Half since 97, and they started... 79 or 80 down in Arizona and she's staff lookouts with him and when he's had to leave for some reason Rhett's been the lookout for yeah. all those years that he was still teaching at Billings yeah every fall Rhett took over until the end of the season oh gotcha you know and it's been just Christy with Jim yeah all all these folks it's real common yeah. now as well it should be yeah but Bessie Sofer who was born in 1914, died in 1997 at 82. She was 18 in 1932 and staffed Beaver Jack Lookout with her then husband in 32, 33, and 34. He was the lookout. Oh. And so, but she learned the craft with him. Yeah. And then 
She staffed Thunder Mountain from 1953 through 1962. In 62, went to Antrim Point, 62 and 63. Did Boulder Point fill-in early and late season during some of those years. And staffed Barracone from 64 through 70. Wow, she's got a lot of lookouts. She's a cool lady. I went to, she and her husband, Carl, her second husband's home, they had a ranch down below Thunder Mountain on, on Hughes Creek Road. Oh. And when she was the lookout up there during those years in the L4, since they had a ranch and a huge garden, her husband, they had their own pack animals. And Carl, every week, would pack up fresh vegetables and oh, elk meat or whatever to her, you know, because they had an endless supply that yeah. down at their ranch. No, that's neat. That's really but cool. She was a cool lady, and she had some interesting... She asked many times if she could help tree plant or pile brush early or late season and do stuff, and they wouldn't let her. Oh, she was a ranch. She grew up as a ranch kid too. Yeah, so tough. I kind of didn't like that. I wanted to do that stuff. I could do it. Yeah, I was no no pansy, you know. I could go do this stuff, but they wouldn't let her because she was a woman. Yeah, male and female roles still back then, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a shame. So that's pretty much. Of the interviews I brought, that's that's pretty much it. And I wanted to, before I ended, I wanted to quickly do that that list of uh, books and stuff. Yeah, for, absolutely. For folks. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, this is not all inclusive. And some of this stuff might be hard to find and some isn't. But these are some of my favorites that I've accumulated over the years. So, of course, Ray Kresick's Fire Lookouts of the Northwest. Yeah. You can find it, but it's really, really pricey now. Yeah. When it was still pretty common, Ray cut a deal with me about 10 years ago, and I bought a copy for each of the fire lookouts at West Fork to have to keep at the lookout, and I bought one from him for the ranger station, too. Oh, cool. So West Fork's got a copy of it in all of them. Um, Philip Connors wrote a book called Fire Season. Hmm about his experiences on lookouts in New Mexico. It's also on unabridged audio CDs, and I have that also. Oh, really? It's, I find it fun sometimes at home to have the book but listen to somebody read the book yeah. while I'm looking at it. And I've taken some of these that are on audio CD, I've taken them up to a lookout with me because I have I transferred them to my iPod, oh, and cool. I can listen to them via speaker at the lookouts. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Of course, Jack Kerouac's Dharma, Dharma Bums, which talks about Desolation Peak. That's that's really a cool one. And oh, Dharma man. Bums is an excellent book. And I've got that on unabridged audio CDs, too. Jake Brow and I listened to it so many times, oh, really? driving back and forth to projects and stuff in truck on the truck with my iPod plugged in that yeah. we have portions of the of the lookout stuff memorized. <laughs> oh, funny. that's cool. Um, there was a woman named Trina Mole, Moles, Moles, M-O-Y-L-E-S, who wrote a book called Lookout. Fairly recently, she staffed one of those big tall towers in northern Alberta. Yeah, yeah. We're f- she describes her experiences there in Canada. 
it's really really good yeah that's a, that's a pretty recent one isn't it yeah yeah because yeah. we just became friends on uh instagram and yeah 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 cool. so i was gonna reach out to her and see if she wanted to be on one of these days you should it's a really good book it's really interesting i think people would find it interesting yeah it's i gotta read it different kind of a tower you know a really tall metal tower that's can. what mark and rhett had in new mexico in those early years in oh. arizona oh gotcha Another really good book is by a woman named Jean Keller Beatty, B-E-A-T-Y. It's called Lookout Wife. She and her husband staffed Long Tom in 1948, West Horse Lookout, which is just south of the Bitterroot Territory hmm. on the Salmon in 1949, and Stoddard Lookout in 1915. Stoddard is a smaller-sized lookout that's up the middle fork of the salmon. Oh, gotcha. And it's an excellent book. So she was there with her husband, but she helped do a lot of the lookout duties. And she's really perceptive. Her 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 descriptions of things in the lookout and just thing, things having to do with, you know, male forest service people and this, that, and the other. I mean, she got along well with everybody, but it's obvious that... She knew her stuff, and she wasn't a pushover. Oh, you know? good, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really a good book, really interesting, and you can you can find it, I think, on Amazon. Yeah. Stephen Pine, of course, is really well known in the fire world. He wrote a number of books: Fire on the Rim, which was a description of his experience as a temporary firefighter, smoke chaser, uh, on the in the Grand Canyon National Park. Oh, cool. For about 16 seasons through the 70s and part of the 80s. So he and I kind of overlapped when I was at Sula. And he wrote a book also called Fire in America and World Fire. Fire on the Rim is is cool. It's really cool. Yeah, check it out. One of the guys that worked with him, who his nickname in those years as a smoke chaser down there was Uncle Jimmy. Oh. And when we on the Hotshot crew... In 1990, of course, we were down there a lot in 88 on the big fires. In 1990, we went a fire called the Pelican Fire. And this guy that had worked with Pine back in those years, his nickname was Uncle Jimmy. And Uncle Jimmy came out to our fire to deliver supplies to us. And I got to talking to him with oh, about Pine. Yeah. So in 2012, Pine came to West Fork. That was the Mustang summer, and West Fork had a ton of wilderness fires. Yeah. He came out to do an article and visit with uh, Ranger Dave Campbell and Bob Much, who was a fire researcher in Missoula and a smoke jumper in the early 50s and stuff like that, oh. and was involved with the very first ever Forest Service Let Burn Fires in the early 70s on West Fork. Pine came out to fly with them. And I met him when he was out there, and I knew he was coming. Yeah. So I brought my copy of Fire to Fire on the Rim and one of the other books and had him sign them, and I told him that I'd met Uncle Jimmy in oh, Yellowstone. Cool. And that yeah. was cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So Pine, Pine's a good one. Yeah. Uh, not so much, some of these are not so much lookout, but they're just good fire, good fire stuff. Yeah. Ellers Koch, K-O-C-H, was one of the early foresters. He wrote a book that's called 40 Years a Forester, which is excellent. I think I've seen that one. It sounds familiar. It's yeah. really good. And he was the soup of the Bitterroot Forest way back also. Oh, maybe that's how I know the name. Yeah. And he, his book describes all kinds of interesting things on fires and other. And 
he has a chapter which is just outstanding, and the stories in other books. There was a guy named Ed Thienan during the 1910 fires back in the Moose Creek country who he wrote a sto there's a story about his experience with his crew that's called the Moose Creek Story, mm. and it's in other publications too. But uh, Koch describes that book or, or that, that fire because they were on a camp out after a fire, him and a bunch of other people in the 30s, and Thenan was there, and they got to talking around the campfire. This is, this is a story which I've always wanted. I always wanted to have on a smoke chaser fire with me or the hotshot fire and read the story to the crew while we're actually sitting around a campfire. Oh, yeah. And that's what he was doing when Thenan describes this event to him, having to hide in a stream and oh, a guy freaking out and all kinds of crazy, dangerous stuff. That's gnarly, yeah. So Ellers Koch, rhymes with watch, his yeah. last name, five, 40 years of force here. Ed Abbey, of course, who wrote The Journey Home and um, the book about, um, now the title escapes me, um, it's a novel. Oh, gotcha. Hey, Duke, and all that stuff. The, oh. They were going to destroy the Glen Canyon Dam, I think, you know. And oh. It's, it's, a, it's a story. Oh, cool. But he, he has a book in a, a book called The Journey Home, which he describes he and his wife spending the summer of 1975 on, on Numa Ridge Lookout in Glacier Park. Oh, that'd be awesome. And that late summer, I was on a drive back to visit my relatives in Kansas, and my Volkswagen van broke down outside of, uh, of uh, um, <laughs> now I forget the name. It's the town where everybody, Arches, outside Arches. of Arches. Oh, gotcha, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... I didn't know who Abby was, but he just happened to come in when my van was just about done getting worked on. Oh, really? And he saw my Montana license plate and mentioned that he'd been on a lookout in Glacier Park. I said, yeah, I want to do that someday. And after he left, the guy on the thing said, do you know who that guy was? And I went, no. And said, that's Ed Abbey. He's a famous environmentalist guy, you know, and he's done all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, that's cool. You got to yeah. meet some cool people. yeah. And then K.D. Swan, S-W-A-N, who was an early forest ranger, he wrote a book called Splendid on the Trail, which is also excellent. And Swan was famous as a Forest Service photographer. He's taken tons of photos of lookouts, of people working, of scenery, going as far back as 1918. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. That's really cool. And... He, he, along with, um, with Bill Bell, in the summer of 1918, rode by horseback to Gardner Mountain oh, on, way on the Selway because Bell wanted to see if Gardner would be a suitable location for a lookout. Yeah. So they made the first ever exploratory of Gardner, which, of course has an L4 on it and is technically it's on the Bitterroot Forest right on the divide with the Nez but the Nez administers it. We always wanted to get it back. Yeah, been cool. But they made still, the first look around and still staffed. They didn't really think it was the best at oh, the really? time because it had a lot of trees on it and stuff but actually 
it's been a lookout since the late 20s, so I guess it's okay. Yeah, yeah it worked <laughs> out, yeah. Yeah. And then Tim Egan, E-G-A-N, wrote The Big Burn, which is a story of the 1910 fires. This isn't a lookout deal, but yeah. it's excellent. I've also got that thing on complete and unabridged audio CDs. Oh, cool. All about the 1910 fires. And um, it's available as a PDF through the Forest History Society in Missoula. You can find the whole thing online. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll check it out. John Suter, S-U-I-T-E-R, wrote Poets on the Peaks, which is about uh, Gary Snyder and Whalen and Kerouac and their lookout experiences over in the North Cascades. Oh, cool. That's great, great name, Poets on the Peaks. Yeah, Poets on the Peaks. It's a good one. Yeah. And then Earl Cooley, of course, Trimotor and Trail, if yeah. you can find it. That's cool because it's got a lot of Bitterroot stuff in it yeah and then there's a collection of five volumes which our supervisor's office here might still have them they've reproduced them all mm. and the forest history society you can get them through them they're called early days in the forest service and they're primarily a region one experience going way back just interviews and stories by all these people that have worked on ranger districts all over Region one oh, that's over cool. all these years. Yeah. So that that's my list and I know there's more stuff out there, but these yeah. are just and I've got more than these. These are just the ones that I found to be lookout wise were really cool or just fire history. Yeah. Do in you want, general or Yeah, um, do you do you want folks to reach out to you on Instagram to send you more suggestions yeah, if they have if it? They want to. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be so, cool. Yeah, no, I'll yeah. or Reenfire at yahoo.com oh really you can email me yeah that'd be cool yeah 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 i'd I'd like that i'd really like that yeah and then basically that's it um there's also some cool lookout poems that people have written over the years and sometimes some of them are in the ffla deal oh yeah and i figured I'd basically end this with this short one that a guy named Gordon Keyes, actually this was in the Lookout Network magazine here not too terribly long ago. Oh, cool. And he said, I've, this isn't really a poem, but he said, I've tried to explain this job to friends, meaning being a lookout, but really I can't even explain it to myself. This is to all my brothers and sisters who live in little boxes on mountaintops through all the friends of lookouts who keep it real. May all your asthmas be true. May you always have fresh water and good food. May your fires be not newsworthy, even on NC Web. And may your 80th sunrise be as good as your first. And I'm closing with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. All around beneath me was spread for a hundred miles on every side, as far as the eye could reach, an undulating country of clouds answering in the varied swell of its surface to the terrestrial world it veiled it was such a country as we might see in dreams with all the delights of paradise that is awesome good stuff really good so i wanted to say to you man this has been this is the fourth one you and i've done yeah and it's cool that we we finally got to do one basically about somebody's history other than mine <laughs> you know well yeah but you know i appreciated the opportunity to get the three that you and i did of of all of my experiences with the hotshot crew and fire crews and lookouts and then that we got to read some of these interviews with old timers i mean i could yeah. i could do 
more of these with Mark and Rhett and the folks from nowadays too, because they've got cool stories. All of them have good stories. Yeah. But things are just done in different ways now, you know. Mm-hmm. And some of these people, you know, hike into fires, and I mean, there's other stories that I didn't read of a person would be alone on a lookout as the lookout and the smoke chaser, and they'd spot a fire and call it in. And it's like, well, you're the closest go to it. Yeah. And in a straight line distance, it's eight, it's eight miles away. But from where the lookout is, you got to go to the bottom of a huge drainage and up the other side. So it's way more than eight miles. You're the only one there. You got to hope that nothing goes wrong because there's nobody to help you. Yeah. You have no radio communication. Yeah. Just crazy stuff. You Just know, and I'm sure that happened at times. I don't have any in my interviews that somebody had hiked to a fire and it'd blow up and they'd have to run for their life. Yeah, I'd probably rather make it out of there. It had to have happened at some point or other. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, this has been cool, and I really appreciate it, and I hope folks enjoyed some of these stories. Yeah, I've been getting some really good feedback, man. I think people really enjoy it. I really appreciate you having it on, man. You lived a hell of a life, and it's it's good to to hear it, you know, and, and at least be part of it, you know, just me sitting here listening to it. But it's it's, uh, it's been great for me, man. I really appreciate it. And I know Thanks. we could do a bunch more because even— We will. We'll, we'll figure out—we'll think of some other stuff. Well, even just—I was going <laughs> to say, just even the Yellowstone uh, yeah. fire experience that you had there, you know, like yeah. that. I could think that could be an episode in all in itself. And like I said, I've got journals of all that stuff, so, I, you know, a lot of, a lot of interesting ha- things happened on— on, over the years on a lot of those fires and yeah good stories absolutely yeah well, i think we'll wrap it up there Reen, unless you got anything else sounds good well thanks again folks appreciate you thank you folks for listening